Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Bonfire Briefing Podcast. This week I talked with former Libertarian presidential candidate Sam Robb. We had an awesome conversation. We talked about ending the war on drugs, some of the different projects he's working on, and, according to him, the largest furry convention in the United States, which he attended not too long ago. Uh, I didn't know that I'd ever spend any of this podcast talking about furries, uh, but it happened. And uh, it was still a really great conversation. Hope you guys enjoy. There we go. We should be live. Sam Robb, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Taylor. I appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really glad uh, that you could join us today for the show. We were just we were just talking about um, you know some of the stuff you had been up to recently, and you mentioned Liberty Con um, in Chattanooga. I'm actually from Tennessee. I, I don't live there anymore. Um, actually, looking to go back here in a few weeks, visit some family. Uh, over Memphis area. Um, you, you talk a little bit about Liberty Con. What was it like over there? I, oh. wish, I, had, I wish I was in the back, back in my home state so I could have went. <laughs> it's, uh, Liberty Con was fantastic. I've been uh, wanting to go there for years, literally. Um, I got a, uh, a membership and, and registered to attend uh, back in 2019. Uh, and, uh, so you can imagine what happened in 2020 was that, uh, it got delayed and then it got delayed again and finally was able to go, you know, after, after three years, um, significant enough time delay for me that when, uh, when I registered, I was not a published author. And when I got to attend, I was, which was kind of cool, um, but uh, it, it really, it's a, it's a literary science fiction fantasy convention, uh, very much geared towards uh, authors and publishers. Uh, I'd say probably about a third, maybe, maybe more of the attendees were uh, writers or uh, publishers or related editors related to the publishing business. So it was very, very interesting to meet some of the people that I've been reading for, for years and in some cases, decades. Um, and get a chance to, to say hi to them and talk to them about uh, publishing business and about, about writing in general. Um, came out of there with uh, uh, a renewed <laughs> commitment to uh, sitting down and, and writing every day. So uh, I've got three things, that, three targets, daily targets now. Uh, I, want to, I want to do some writing, I want to do some editing, and I want to do some reading uh, to kind of keep myself, keep the, keep the uh, creative juices flowing. So it was a wonderful, wonderful time, had a ball. The f- people down there were amazing. Um, and not just the, the convention goers, all the people that we met in Chattanooga were fantastic. Uh, just loved the, loved the city, loved what we saw of it, uh, had an absolute blast. And uh, I think we're, we're going to try and go back next year and probably leave a couple of days before and after so that we can actually explore some more and, uh, get a feel for the town and uh, meet up with some people that we know down there because it was really awesome. Yeah, man. Chattanooga is, is an awesome little town. I, I, you know, I haven't been, uh, in, in quite some time, actually, it's been quite a while since I've 
I've been over there, but like that, that whole East side of the state is really just, there, there's some, I mean, all the way from Chattanooga, Knoxville, out, out towards some of the towns near the mountains, everything like that. It really is just a beautiful, beautiful part of the state, man. You'll, you'll definitely have to do some, some exploring next time you're down there. Oh, it, it absolutely was gorgeous. Just walking around, uh, town, uh, in the morning, I like to go out and one of the things I do is I walk and I take pictures. Um, and I think about things and that's, that's my thinking time and my, my, Oh, this would make a good story time. And, uh, just getting out and walking around Chattanooga, just all the sights to see. It was, it just oh, really man. tickled me. It was awesome. Yeah, no, it's, um, oh man. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's such a great town. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, before we hopped on another convention, one that I'm a bit less familiar with, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that you also attended. An- yeah. Uh, Anthrocon. Is that the, that Anthrocon, the yeah. Up in, I did, up in I, Pittsburgh. Up in Pittsburgh, uh, every year, uh, it's the largest furry convention in the U.S., I believe. It might it might even be the largest furry convention in the world. Um, I've never attended Anthrocon, uh, never never actually signed up and gone. Um, but every year, I try to make it down to Pittsburgh, either you know either on a Friday or a Saturday, uh, just to walk around the convention center, check it out, see all the see all the people in their fur suits. Um, it's one of those things that that uh i mean people put a ton of time and effort and creativity into into creating these costumes and it's it's incredibly impressive some of the things they they accomplish um the uh and you know honestly as a a uh, as a libertarian right seeing people and and i don't i hope no no furries take offense at this because because i mean it you know genuinely and honestly uh, but just seeing you let your freak flag fly is awesome. I, I, I just love it. It's fantastic. Um, they don't, yeah, they're just doing, doing themselves and being who they are and uh, uh, don't really care about it. And uh, it's, it's huge too. When I say it's the biggest convention, it, I think it's, uh, you know, like nine or 10,000 people uh, oh, this year. Damn. And uh, yeah, they, they sold out, I think 12 hotels or, or, maybe even more hotels in uh, downtown Pittsburgh. Um, so, I mean, we saw traveling through the city yesterday, we saw basically furries at just about every corner of the city at one point or another, <laughs> um, which is, which is kind of, I mean, it's, it's just, like I said, it's really, it's awesome to see. And, but I also, <laughs> I also felt bad. We saw a couple of, uh, uh, a couple of ladies that had taken taken off their their uh, heads on their fursuits. and uh, you could tell, yeah, maybe July is not the best time to be walking around outside <laughs> in a complete full body suit. Uh, but it just shows you, man, they're they're dedicated. They they want to get out there, and uh, the number number of people I saw posing for pictures with kids, uh, you know, with you know, folks, it just you know happy to be there and excited, excited to see that. Uh, there was a pirate game going on that let out about the same time that, uh, everybody was going to dinner. So we had two different crowds mingling and it was, uh, it was really kind of cool. Yeah. I actually went, I actually went up to Pittsburgh. Uh, let me, I'm trying to remember. It's been, it's been a couple months now. Um, it was my first time up there. I was 
you know, visiting some different friends. And um, one of the first things I did when I got there was go to a go to a Pirates game. And I can't remember who they were playing, but there, there was something almost 30 runs were scored. Uh, during the game and it, it was my first pro baseball game that I had ever been to I'm, I'm a pretty casual baseball fan but yeah uh, my you know my buddy is a pretty big fan so we went and, uh, it, it was <laughs> it was pouring down rain when we went, <laughs> which was uh, <laughs> which you know not something we had really planned for but uh, that's just that's just what happened and you know of course there weren't uh, that many people there because uh, they didn't want to get drenched, so we were able to move up and get some real good seats. And uh, awesome! No man, it was it was a really good time. I'm, I'm actually looking to go back uh, sometime during the summer. I, I live down in South Texas, and it's uh, the heat down here is pretty miserable. I think move you know spending uh, a week or two up north might not be a, <laughs> a, a bad idea. You have any any recommendations of stuff to do in Pittsburgh whenever I visit again? Oh man, there's a ton of stuff. You've got the, uh, well, you've got the Pirates games, like you said, uh, Riverhound soccer. That's uh, across the, across the uh, the point from uh, the Pirates stadium. Um, the South Side's always fun. We've got a ton of restaurants on the South Side in the Strip in Lawrenceville. Um, it's really kind of a foodie paradise if you, if you're into trying different things. Um, Museums. We've got, you know, up in Oakland, you've got uh, the Carnegie Museum, Natural History. You've got uh, uh, the Mattress Factory, which is a, more of a modern art museum. Um, the the Warhol Museum. Um, you know, the Sci- Buell Science Center. Uh, you know, you can go tour the uh, USS Requin, which is a uh, World War II era submarine that is docked in the on the riverside down by the Science Center. Uh, Definitely ride the incline if you get the chance going uh, up and down the uh, Mount Washington. Uh, Mount Washington's a great place to just stroll and and uh, take some pic- pictures of the city. Uh, there's a, there's a ton of stuff to do, but uh, like I said, for me, um, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy in the city is just being able to w- walk around, check things out, um, see the different neighborhoods. Uh, see what's, you know, see what's going on. Every neighborhood has its own, own bit of character. Um, right. Squirrel Hill is different, entirely different from, uh, from uh, going up on Polish Hill, very different from Mount Washington, um, you know, in terms of, you know, restaurants and shops and everything. Definitely, if you do get the come down, uh, if you have the chance during the day, uh, go check out the Strip District. That is just a lot of fun. There's a ton of stores, ton of restaurants, uh, souvenir shops, all sorts of different, uh, you know, places that do metalworking, you know, chocolate, uh, uh, Pennsylvania libations, which is a, a uh, uh, one of the only non-state stores where you can buy alcohol and uh, distilled spirits. And they, they get away with that, I think, because uh, everything they sell is made in Pennsylvania. So, oh, wow. uh, it's there's some yeah there's some really there's some really cool stuff you can find if you just walk around and poke your nose in some places. Yeah, no, there there definitely is. It's a it's a great city, and uh, I think I'll I'll heed your advice. I don't think I'll be wearing a big uh, big furry suit whenever <laughs> I visit. You know, I I, uh, <laughs> I know it's probably not not quite as hot up there, but uh, still doesn't really sound like a good idea when you're walking around oh, the city. No. 
trying to visit. Um, but no, man, I, well, I wanted to, you know, really, really glad you could come on, uh, you know, the show I've been, you know, I, I've been seeing your tweets and following you a little bit. Um, and, I, you know, I wanted to ask, um, you know, how, how, how did you get involved in politics? What was kind of your start in, in getting involved in the political realm? And uh, how, how did you end up becoming a libertarian? Um, well, becoming a libertarian was, uh, uh, that happened, that happened a long time ago. Um, I've always been a fan of, uh, I've mentioned earlier, LibertyCon, uh, science fiction convention. I've always been a fan of, uh, Robert Heinlein, F. Paul Wilson, uh, L. Neil Smith, a bunch of other writers that are very libertarian. So, uh, for the longest time, I'd say probably back to about, 2000 or so, uh, I would describe myself as conservative, uh, or Republican with libertarian leanings. Um, maybe about a decade ago, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, the Mitt Romney, uh, nomination that really kind of pushed me out of the Republican camp and into the libertarian camp. Um, I didn't see, either party really interested in making any significant changes, uh, or returning liberty to the people. So I decided to go with the, with the party that did. Um, and then, uh, back in 2019 or so decided, uh, being a libertarian and having grown up in the United States where they tell you that anybody could grow up to be president. I decided to run for president, uh, sought the libertarian nomination, uh, didn't get it, obviously. Joe Jorgensen did. I was proud to be able to endorse her and uh, uh, spend some time in Pennsylvania working for her and on her campaign uh, with her and Spike Cohen. But uh, that was kind of kind of a feet first, uh, you know, getting thrown off the pier into the deep end sort of introduction to politics. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily, uh, but it, I did have a lot of fun. Got to meet some amazing people, uh, folks that my wife and I still keep in touch with across the country, uh, folks that I'm still working with. Uh, I'm on the board of uh, People for Liberty uh, with uh, Joe Jorgensen and Dan Fishman, uh, another a uh, couple of other gentlemen uh, that you might recognize, Jim Gray and Judge Jim Gray and uh, Jim Babka uh, from Downsize mm-hmm. DC. Uh, lady by the name of Chris Crawford, who's heavily involved in politics up in, uh, I believe, Massachusetts. Uh, so these are all people that I met through, you know, this kind of, esc- you know, my escapades there and uh, got to know a bunch of people in Pennsylvania uh, that that uh, really got to be got to be good friends with. Uh, Christine Kusler-Womack, who was my, uh, uh, I, I don't know if I was her right-hand man or if she was my right-hand lady, but the two of us were, were working together on uh, uh, Joe and Spike's campaign here in Pennsylvania and uh, couldn't have done it without her. And, uh, you know, she's, she is absolutely amazing. Folks, folks that, uh, you know, I would not have met otherwise. And I'm tremendously glad to have met. I'm also tremendously glad to not be as involved as I was <laughs> at the beginning because uh, it really was like having it. Campaign, the campaigning itself was uh, was a lot of fun. It was, there was a lot of effort put into that, but it was a lot of fun. You got to travel, you got to meet people, you got to to talk to people about all sorts of things. Um, 
after that, running Joe's campaign, getting involved in Pen- in Pennsylvania on the, at the state level with the uh, state Libertarian Party committee, um, it was like having a second job. I mean, right. literally, I would I got to the point where I would uh, I would wake up around seven o'clock, um, you know, let the dogs out, sit down with my laptop, uh, work for three hours before I had to, you know, uh, go to work, do my day job. Uh, I'd come home, eat dinner, and then I'd sit down and work for another four or five hours in the evening, um, helping candidates, you know, clearing up issues with election boards, uh, doing, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. And uh, decom- it's taken some time to decompress from that, but I'm actually really glad. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I have time, more time now for things uh Things that I that I really do enjoy, think you know, uh, making sure I could get out, get those walks, and decompress, um, uh, doing more writing, uh, just have it, just uh, kind of being able at this point to uh, look at different activities in the libertarian world and in the liberty world, and uh, figure out, okay, this is that here's some place where I can I can do something that that. Uh, I guess fits my talents a little bit better than, uh, you know, running, full, running full tilt and, and holding down a second job in politics. Yeah, I can, I can definitely imagine that, you know, run, running your own campaign and then, you know, going straight from that to working for, uh, Joe's campaign was, it had to keep, it kept you pretty busy. Um, oh, yeah. what, what were some of the big, uh, policies that you prioritized during your, your run for president. Oh, wow. For, for me, um, there were a couple, I kind of did an A to Z, which, uh, isn't really, I wouldn't recommend that for, for a, for a candidate. Um, having gotten some more experience, you know, you, you learn by doing sometimes, and sometimes you, you learn by failing or, or right. not doing things the right way. Um, my advice if, if for a candidate, if you're going to run these days would be, uh, you know, pick your, pick your top three. Your, your top three issues that you want to deal with and uh, focus on those. Uh, for me, looking back on, I would say my top three were probably uh, immigration, uh, the economy, and individual liberties. And uh, the, that kind of wraps up a, bun- a, a bunch of different, different aspects of uh, things that I talked about in policies. Um, Immigration, I, I thought and I still think that uh, immigration is what made our country great. My grandparents were immigrants My my on both sides of the family. Um, uh, you know, I work in an industry. I'm in a, so- a software developer. I work in an industry where we have a lot of people that come to the U.S. on visas to work here uh, and end up either staying or, or uh you know, getting, you know, going through the steps to become, uh, naturalized citizens. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where I, I, you know, I've had to deal with the immigration service myself. Uh, my three daughters are all adopted from overseas. So, uh, I've got an, an insight into just how tangled that process can be. And, uh, it's a mess. It really is. And it's, it doesn't serve our country well. What uh, what we really need is a return to uh, a more per- the more permissive model, the Ellis Island sort of immigration model that we used to have, 
Uh, right now, we're basically saying, hey, we'll, we'll let you in if we think you're good. Uh, right. Ellis Island used to be, hey, we'll let you we'll let you in unless we think that you're going to you're going to be a problem, unless you've got a criminal history, you've got got some medical problems, whatever. Right. But it was uh, it was much more permissive. Basically, hey, if you want to come to America, if you want to be an American, we want you here. And that really is what made America great. That's what allowed us to to grow and expand. And uh, you didn't really see, I don't think, uh, a lot of problems with immigration until you started getting into larger government, um, you know, getting getting the federal government more involved in uh, what's going on. So, you know, I think, you know, number one, I would have said return to return to immigration, uh, immigration to being much more permissive. Um, number two, economy, just get the, get the government out of the economy. Uh, it puts its thumbs on all sorts of scales, causes all sorts of problems. We're seeing that now with, with, uh, gas prices and, and, uh, you see it through with various different laws, uh, you know, certificate of need laws for, for medicine, uh, where the state or local government says, yeah, we're, yeah, we're not going to let you. Uh, for example, we're not going to let you put another, an, another, uh, MRI machine in a County unless all your competitors there agree that they need an, that there should be another MRI machine facility, um, which is absolutely ridiculous that you would run things that way. But, right. uh, that's the way we do in a lot of, a lot of ways, uh, licensing, occupational licensing laws. A lot of those are nuts. Pennsylvania, we have state stores. I mentioned that, uh, earlier, um, where the it's the government actually you know they have a monopoly on selling uh, distilled spirits and alcohol. Uh, it, it's really kind of nuts the the way that the government gets involved in the economy and really let's pull back from that. Let's 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 get the government out of interfering with our with our economic relationships with each other. And then, uh, like I said, the la- last one was uh, you know kind of individual liberties. And uh, that was that's kind of a catch-all for a lot of things, um, you know. Examining examining our civil liberties in the United States, where we stand on that. Um, taking a look at uh, one of the phrases that uh, that came up a lot was uh, "defund the police," and mm-hmm. was really it was really interesting for me, right? Because I agree with that one hundred percent. But I'll, I'll put a caveat there. I. I I'd like to ch- I liked to change that and say we should be defunding law enforcement uh, because police are supposed to be peacekeepers. They're supposed to be there for for what you know, just like the fire department. If you have a problem, it's somebody that you can call to help you out, right? You don't have the fire department going around and and uh, you know coming onto your property and there yeah, we're going to do a surprise inspection of your house or or you know whatever uh, you. They're not. They're not looking for looking for problems. They're there to help you solve problems. Uh, we moved from a you know a, a model of policing in the United States that used to be the very you know kind of the Pelian uh, uh, you know community policing where police officers were members of the community that that basically had the same responsibilities as everybody else in the community to keep the peace to. To uh, make sure that that everything functioned smoothly societally, um, but they did it full time, as opposed mm-hmm. to you know people doing it part time, and uh, 
I think we really we really need we would be served incredibly well in the United States by by stopping to take a look at that at what's happened to our peacekeepers at what's happened to our police forces that has changed them from that from being peacekeepers into being law enforcement because you know, when you stop and think about keeping the peace and enforcing the laws are two entirely different things and it's i think it's our our view of the police as oh there's laws that they need to, that they need to to make sure that everybody follows versus you know what we're going to make we're going to make sure that that nobody's hurting each nobody's hurting anybody nobody's taking anybody's stuff that uh we're keeping our hands to ourselves as uh I think it's uh, Sergeant Tom Cotton from, uh, uh, oh man, what's Bangor, Maine Police Department uh, likes that likes to use that phrase. You know, uh, keep your keep your hands to yourself, be kind to one another. Uh, very libertarian thoughts, but uh, aside from that, you know, the police should be there as a resource when we are in trouble, not something that is out there that we have to be afraid of. So there, there you go. Those are, those were my three big ones. Right. Well, what, what do you think caused that that shift um, in our in our law enforcement? Because, you know, I, I definitely think you're right. They you know, they they used to be a a more peacekeeping force. But uh, I don't know that <laughs> I don't know that anyone, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, would describe them really as that now. Uh, what, what do you think caused that shift? I mean, was it and, and how, how could we maybe go back to, you know, that that more preferred um, method of policing, you know, is it something to do with with yeah. training and recruitment? I mean, what 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 are some what what are some tangible solutions there? You think that we could use to maybe fix some of the problems that we're seeing way way too often? I think it, I think that the root of the problem goes back to uh, prohibition, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, an experiment that we had with, hey, let's let's go ahead and. Uh, uh, outlaw alcohol in the United States. And we saw how well that worked. Um, we actually are continuing to see how well that works, even uh, here a century later, right? Because it was prohibition that gave rise to uh, organized crime in a lot of a lot of places in Chicago and New York, uh, crime families that have continued on to this day, um, organizations that have continued on to this day. Uh, Really, you know, and you saw that replicated in the 50s, 60s, 70s with the war on drugs and, and again, continuing right. today. Um, or as I think uh, Joe Jorgensen liked to like to say, uh, and I think I heard Spike say this at least once or twice too, the war on some drugs. Right. Uh, yeah. If you if you if your drug of choice, like Joe Jorgensen is, is uh, bourbon. If your drug of choice, you know, uh, like so many other Americans, is nicotine or caffeine, then that's quite okay, right? Um, it's just some drugs that uh, that the government has problems with. Um, I think the war on drugs really, the, this prohibitionist regime, uh, is really what has funded, fueled, and driven us from the. Uh, Andy Griffith style community police, you know, uh, into, into this law enforcement realm. Um, because uh, you you task these guys with doing the impossible. 
with with rooting out uh basically okay you, you you need to go keep people from smoking but not smoking in general smoking this one particular plant that uh that seems to be popular and it can be done anywhere it can be grown anywhere and you don't get you don't achieve any measure of success there without an, a surveillance state without essentially moving to a police state um and even then you can't win we know that we know we know, we know that very well from from uh from history that there's there's nothing that's going to completely eradicate that and even getting to the point where where you kind of can kind of limit those those uh uh, the availability of those substances to the population in general, um, you're you're doing it in a way that causes more harm than good. Um, you know, not to not to, you know, we we kind of saw that recently, right? In uh, with COVID, where the response to it, where we're starting to see, and I mean, libertarians pointed this out from the beginning. We, you know, I did, you know, Joe and Spike did, we all did right. That the response was going to cause more damage than the disease ever could have. And uh, we're starting, we're actually starting to see that that's, that's exactly where we are. And uh, what we're, what we're seeing, what we saw with, uh, with alcohol prohibition, what we're seeing with the, the war on drugs is that the effort to, you know, eradicate the, those, you know the use of those substances. The the uh, the response to that is causing far more damage than than the the you know the drugs themselves ever could have. So uh, honestly, you know, if we want to reverse this this situation that we're in, end the war on drugs. Get rid get rid of it. Legalize marijuana. Go to you know possibly even go to. Uh, um, trying to think what the what the country is portugal i think did a a decriminalization model where they basically said yeah we realize that you know you there are some people who are going to use these and use these drugs and we're not going to criminalize we're not going to criminalize use that opens you up to hey it's a lot easier to say to go to your your counselor or go to to your employer and say hey i need help I'm right. dealing with substance abuse issues. I need help. And, I, and know that you're not going to end up in jail. You're not going to end up fired. You're not going to have your life ruined. Um, and, and we're kind of kind of in that situation where, where you can do that a little bit. But uh, we need, I mean, we really need more. We need to recognize that, that uh, drug use often is not a, it's not, something in and of itself it can be but a lot of times what you have uh what you see with with alcohol abuse for example what you see what you can see with uh uh overuse and abuse of marijuana or other other substances is not hey i'm you know i'm an addict because i want to be an addict what you have is i'm an addict because i have some underlying mental health issues or i have some underlying history uh you know talking, you know, undiagnosed PTSD, whatever it is. And this is, I found the way to, to medicate myself. I found the way to try and deal with what I've been going through because I didn't understand what it, what it, what it was. A lot of times I think our, our drug abuse issues that we have our mental health issues. A lot of times I think our policing issues that we're, that we're, we're dealing with are war on drug issues. Um, 
if we would understand that and if we change our viewpoint, if we would stop prosecuting people for growing a plan, if we would stop prosecuting people for trying to treat their pain, uh, whether mental or physical, I think we would go a long way towards getting some balance back in this country. Yeah, I th- you know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, the, the time to end the war on drugs was before it ever even started. And, and we've been yeah. continuing this, 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 this policy that we know does not work. We know it doesn't work. And like you said, it obviously does more, more harm than good. It doesn't, it doesn't really be, seem to be doing any good as a matter of fact. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and we've, we've got to wrap up here uh, before too long. I'm actually talking to uh, Dan Berman um, in, in about well, half an hour or so. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Tell him I said hi. Dan is a fantastic guy. My wife loves him. He is, he is awesome. Yeah, no, he's um, yeah, no, he, he really great guy. Can't wait to, uh, to talk to him. I'll absolutely let him know you uh, said hello. There's, there's a couple more things I wanted to talk to you about before we hopped off here. Um, and, and you talked about it a little before, but uh, the People for Liberty group that you're with, with, with mm-hmm. Joe and, and those other guys that, uh, that you mentioned, you know, what, um, you know, what, what all are y'all involved with over there? What, what's y'all's kind of mission, your purpose? What, what kind of things are y'all involved with, um, with, with that group? Um, well, right. One of the things that we're doing, I like to uh, describe it as, uh, we're trying to help liberty minded people who want to do liberty minded things, connect with other liberty minded people. Um, we're working on building communities uh, online, so you know, and social communities, build, building out uh, uh, event calendars to help people understand what's going on in in activities they can participate in. Um, we're going to be working on uh, trying to uh, help people identify and connect with people uh, working on you know legislative issues that might concern them. Um, but the, the whole goal is to, one, to help people who are interested in liberty and freedom and uh, individual rights to connect with one another, to build a community, uh, but two, to also find those people who have specific interests, specific liberty interests uh, in one particular niche and kind of expose them to the idea that what they're seeing may not be uh, just one, you know, just their particular issue that that uh, is an issue, uh, an issue of liberty, but that their same concerns in, for example, with, uh, uh, you know, the war on drugs, the same, same issues that they have with uh, uh, dealing with uh you know, government involvement in the medical system, the same issues that they may have with government schooling, uh, carry over to other areas mm-hmm. so that, you know, the, and honestly, the idea is to take people who are kind of libertarian in, in one area or liberty minded in one area, right. And get them to think, you know what, maybe this, maybe this isn't just this part of the you know, part of the, the government that's a problem. Maybe it's a lot of the parts of the government that all seem to have these same issues. Um, and just build out a community of people who understand, uh, you know, uh, 
Garrett Johnson said, right? Most people are libertarians. They just don't realize it. Uh, We'd like to help them realize that, yeah, this is, this is where you are. This is, this isn't unusual. This the fact that you, that you uh, think that our government is too big and that our government has too much power and that our government should, uh, should back off and, and let people just live their lives. That isn't a radical idea. That's an, that's the American idea. That's the foundation of the country. I mean, we're celebrating it this weekend, right? We basically right. told the British to leave us alone. Let us live our life the way we want. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to get people to understand that, hey, whatever, whatever sphere you're in where you're saying, you know, I, I see I see the government causing problems here. It's not just there. It's all over the place. Man, it, it, it's awesome that y'all are doing that, too, because I, I, I feel, like you said, I feel like being a libertarian is kind of the, the default setting for most people. They, they just don't realize it because the, because of the way our political system is set up, really. Yep. You know, you feel like that if you're if you're not a Democrat and you're not a Republican, then you kind of just don't belong. You know, and it, it makes people feel politically isolated, like they don't have any allies, that they don't have anyone that's trying to get involved with the system and, and make the changes that they want. But in reality, we're all, you know, not not everyone is a libertarian. But like you said, I feel like most people are. They just they don't know it yet. And they don't, you know, in a lot of places, they don't see other libertarians out there fighting for them. So they, you know, they kind of just feel feel alone so it's it's really awesome that that y'all are doing that and helping people get connected and and get more involved man that's that that's really awesome Um, well thank you we're trying you know just one last thing before we hop off here um uh, tom queter is a is a mutual connection of ours he was Mm -hmm. he was on the podcast a while back um you know had had a really awesome conversation with him uh, you know you you said you've been working with him uh on a project uh with a group that he made uh, what, what kind of stuff are y'all working on? I'm, I'm real curious. Well, uh, for for those of you who are not familiar with Tom, uh, Tom is wheelchair bound. He's been uh, basically. Okay. All right, now we're back on after after some technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> not not entirely sure what happened, but uh, but we're back. Um, but yeah, if you just if, yeah if you just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, you know the project that you and Tom are working on and. Um, what y'all are doing with that. Yeah, that, that actually, uh, I, I started to say Tom is, uh, for those in your audience who don't know him, uh, is wheelchair bound. He has been for, uh, uh, basically since, since, uh, since he was a child. Um, and, uh, the wheelchair model that he likes that a lot of people, uh, yeah, not, not just, not just, uh, not just him, but a lot of people, uh, in his situation that, that basically are, are quadriplegics or, or paraplegics and, and need uh, a wheelchair constantly, uh, his wheelchair design is fantastic. Uh, it's it's head and shoulders above just about anything else that I think you can find out there. Um, but the, uh, the uh, chair itself, uh, the company that made it was sold. And then uh, the company that, that took them over, as you, you know, might happen, when, when this happens, the, the design of the chair was changed um, and it got away from the, what made it so attractive to, to Tom and a lot of other people. And uh, some, of the, some of the patents on the, the chair uh, are 
uh, either expired or going to be expiring. And uh, we're looking at uh, basically recreating this design that so many people liked. Uh, Tom got in touch with me because I'm a software developer. Uh, he's actually uh, been in communication with uh, Dan Berman, which I, I believe you said uh, you're going to be talking to soon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, this is really it's it's an incredible story uh, because you know Tom's current wheelchair and uh, kind of his, his, the I think the uh, the backup wheelchair that they they have for him uh, have all been crowdfunded through you know from uh, libertarians. Uh, the government really is kind of at a loss for what to do because with, with Tom, because I, I think he uh, was supposed to have, you know, uh, passed away when he was like 12 or something. So uh, he's pushing 40 and <laughs> still going, running for Congress and, and, uh, right. you know, doing all these projects. But uh, he is a, he is an amazingly tough guy. He is very dedicated. And uh, what he saw in his life was that uh, the government wasn't really able to help him. Um, you know, it was voluntary uh, associations and libertarians and, and liberty minded people that stepped up to give him a hand. So uh, we're looking at building a probably, you know, building out a team to uh, work on maybe recreating this this wheelchair design. Um, I've got contacts, you know, here in uh, Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University might might uh, try and reach out to some people there to see about providing some input, uh, some advice, some technical expertise. Uh, yeah, Tom's, Tom's got Dan, who is actually uh, he's another software developer. He's a tremendous guy, incredibly smart, uh, a bunch of a bunch of other people involved with the project. Uh, Lauren Postler, who was uh one of the founders for people for Liberty, um, you know, just some really great people with a really, you know, a really great vision of, Hey, here's, here's something that, uh, that people loved that we can, we can, uh, you know, recreate or, or improve upon and get out there and show people that, you know, this, this model of voluntary cooperation works for something that's really, I mean, when you get right get right down to it, incredibly detailed, very significant, um, you know, in terms in terms of money and, and time and investment, but uh, I think uh, long term is best served by making it as open and as available as possible, uh, rather than you know trying to, uh, I guess you know kind of lock lock it in and make sure that you're you're controlling it. Um, so that that's a, a tremendous vision from from Tom and his team, and I'm really pleased to be able to work with them uh, on this, even you know in whatever small capacity I can. Man, that that's awesome, man. And you're you're right. Tom is such an awesome guy. I was so you know I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to him. I think it was I think it was early last month. You know, we sat down and talked and. I mean, he really is just a just an awesome guy, and I, you know, and I've I've really enjoyed our conversation too. I'm really glad you you came on the show, and um, we, you know, we talked about a lot of interesting stuff, man. I you know, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Oh, I lo I loved it, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's not it when when you have a conversation that can range from uh, 
you know, science fiction conventions to furries to uh, what to do in Pittsburgh and <laughs> and uh, wheelchair projects. It's it's just awesome to be able to talk to folks. Thank man, you so much. Nothing is off limits on this podcast. <laughs> you're, you're welcome back anytime, man. And uh, yeah, I got to hop off here to go talk with Dan. I'll be sure to let him know you said hello. Please do. And thank All you right. again for having me on, man. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with former Libertarian presidential candidate Sam Robb. I really enjoyed our talk. He's got some great ideas, and he's working on some really awesome projects, including one that he's working on with Tom Queter, who was on the podcast a few weeks back. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to follow Bonfire Brief Pod on Twitter so you don't miss out on future episodes. Next week, I'm talking with Dan Taxationist Theft Berman another former Libertarian presidential candidate and former 2022 Texas gubernatorial candidate. You're not going to want to miss that one either. Thanks for listening. All right, there we go. Mark Tibbetts, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Taylor. Nice to be here. Man, it's um, it's really great to have you on. I know um, I, I first became aware of you um, on Twitter, you know, getting as, as you know, interwoven into the libertarian scene um, as I have. And, you know, I, I live in San Antonio. I'm a, I'm a Texas resident, so I'll be, I'll be looking to vote come November. And I think uh, like a lot of Texans, um, there's a lot of us, I, I feel like are not too happy with the two mainstream choices, uh, that we have in, in governor Abbott and, and Beto O'Rourke. And I think, uh, I think this governor race is, um, is one where people are going to be looking for another option. I know I am. So it's just really, uh, you know, really good to have you on the show to, uh, talk about that. I want to know, man, how's the campaign trail been treating you so far? Uh, well, uh, once again, Taylor, thank, thanks for having me here. Um, it's always uh, a pleasure to be on uh, as many of the shows that I can. So far, uh, the campaign has been uh, very, very uh, successful. It's been very good. We have, um, uh, when I ran in 2018, we broke all state records of, as far as number of votes uh, obtained for Libertarian. Uh, this go around, we have already uh, achieved some things that have never been achieved before, <clears throat> uh, namely uh, been on the same stage as uh, one of the two party main candidates. Uh, we uh, were on the same stage and debated uh, Beto O'Rourke in, in Dallas uh, in front of a bunch of students uh, and received tremendous uh, acceptance but as expected, it is very frustrating trying to run a campaign with the limited resources that you have and with the two-party system mm -hmm. uh, that we call a duopoly fighting against you every step of the way. We have proven that they can work together, especially if it is trying to keep libertarians off the ballot they uh, enacted laws that we uh, have been fighting. And just recently, they filed a petition to kick oh, 20 
some odd uh, libertarians off of the ballot. Right. Uh, so it, it, it's it's a struggle. The two party system, uh, the duopoly, like I say that we call it, they they want to keep it a duopoly because they can blame each other for everything that they have done. And I am told all the time, you need to smile more. You need to be more, uh, you know, happy, enthusiastic. But 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 then I turn uh, turn on the TV and see what the two-party system is doing to us and i mean just recently uh, our founding fathers fought uh one tyrant five thousand miles away to not have to pay taxes for taxes and for control and now we're fighting five thousand tyrants one mile away that are enacting new laws 80 some odd billion dollars more for 87,000 more tax collectors. If memory serves, that's more IRS agents than the British Army had coming after us. <laughs> it, 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 the, the irony of the whole thing is just so ludicrous, and it doesn't seem like the two-party system gets it. No, I, I, I think you're right, and it's um I, I saw that same thing about them wanting to kick all those all those libertarians off the ballot. And it's just you know, if 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 that doesn't show that they see you guys as a threat, you know, I don't know what will. I mean, it's very clear that they don't want libertarians involved in this process at all. And it's and they're they're pretty open about just wanting to kick you guys off for that that reason. Did they did they try doing this kind of stuff when you ran in the last cycle or in any previous cycles? And are, are they going to be successful in kicking you guys off the ballot? That would just be awful. They have been semi successful in, in kicking us off the ballot. Um, they have not been totally successful. He, here is the crux of the whole thing is the Republicans and Democrats, they just have to file a a grievance or complaints. And then the secretary of state runs with it. We are fighting. And then the libertarians, when we fight it, we have to spend tens of thousands of dollars in fighting these uh, laws uh, to, to try to, Get that they are so unconstitutional. You can read uh, what the judges say about it. They're saying laws like this are obviously, and I'm just uh, ad living here, but laws like this are, are obvious, obviously intended to keep third party candidates off the ballot. And you have Republicans that control uh, the, the Congress, that, that control the state, openly stating that. They consider it a dereliction of duty, not getting the libertarians kicked off of the ballot. Right. This is, I mean, we need more choices. We need more options because if we see what's going on with the two-party system, they're really not that much different. They are growing the government I mean, just turn on the TV, just just watch how they're growing the government and people don't get it that, for instance, this IRS growth, it, it is nothing but to control us. 
and to arm, to have a standing army, basically, to control the general public, to take away our freedoms and our liberties. And if we do not fight for them, if we do not fight for them with every breath we take, with every fiber of our being, we are going to lose them and we will never get them back. Half of me believes that this fight is over, uh, but I still have to keep fighting. I still have to keep voicing my opinion until it is silenced and I have no other recourse. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That's why it's it's so important to have guys like you and um, other, you know, a lot of the libertarians that I've talked to and even other ones around the country. It's it's so important <clears throat> for you guys to give voters that option, because a lot of us see it in the same way that you do. I mean, I, I don't know how anyone can see the hiring of I, I believe 87,000 IRS agents, I believe it was. I, sure. I don't see how anyone can look at that and see it as anything other than the government exercising control that they that they should not have. And that's why, you know, I was really I was really glad to get you uh, scheduled on the show so so I could talk to you about some of these things. But just before we get you know too deep into it, could you tell me a little bit about, you know, yourself and your background and, you know, how you got involved with the Libertarian Party and, and what ultimately you know, inspired you to run for governor? Well, I, my father uh, was a World War II vet. Mm -hmm. He raised us, his family, basically with fundamental libertarian values. And and I've said this before, uh, the Libertarian Party itself, even though it's been around for 50 years, the libertarian ideals and libertarianism was was what founded this country. And I have been all my life a libertarian, and I would be a libertarian even if the Libertarian Party did not exist. Mm -hmm. I would still have those core fundamental libertarian values. Um, as far as my background and myself, I am um, uh, I was born and raised uh, in Mexico. I uh, am a uh, uh, licensed Mexican attorney. I studied law in Mexico. I, I got an MBA from Mexico, uh, San Luis Potosi, Mexico. I practice law in Mexico. I am an international legal and business consultant for people who have uh, businesses or property in Latin America. I am bilingual, bicultural. Uh, I am a father of six, a grandfather of seven. I have lived in the state of Texas. Uh, my, I have had my permanent residency here for over 25 years. I am a U.S. citizen uh, by birthright. My parents uh, were both both uh, from the United States. Therefore, I'm a natural born citizen. And with my background, I, I view some of the issues, well, actually all the issues that face us, I view them from an out-of-the-box kind of perspective, that I don't have the typical solutions that most you'll hear from most politicians of, well, we need more government. We need to put a, a, a study in that. We need to more taxes, as the Democrats always are going, we need more taxes. We need to pay people more money. We need money, 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 money. 
uh, and you hear from the Republicans, we need to reduce government. But they, it, it's just lip service. Mm-hmm. In reality, they, they do nothing except increase the government over and over again. My view is and always has been and always will be returning the power, and I, I really don't like using that word power, but returning the rights, the liberties, the freedoms to the people. Uh, we were founded to be a government uh, uh, by the people, uh, for the people, of the people, for the people, and by the people. And we have we have ceased to be that. And there are a lot of issues that I can point to to, to bring this out. For instance, in, our, in education, mm-hmm. we have to return the rights and responsibilities to the parents. We have to empower the parents to where the education money must follow the beneficiaries, in other words, the students and the people responsible that know that the students better of what their qualifications are, whether it 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 needs to go to a college, whether it doesn't need to go to college. The parents know more along with their children of what education they need and the best way to get it, mm-hmm. including with that, the education system and the schools that offer the best uh, security for, for the children, not a government dictated from Washington with all the federal dollars of what should be done in the schools or the state dictating what should be done in the schools, because then you have a, a single idea bringing forth the education for our children. Mm-hmm. It should be the parents that are empowered to make those determinations along with the schools. And I will add here also the sheriff's department. The Uvalde situation mm-hmm. that took place, as as tragic as, as it is, it, there is, like I said, I'm, I'm a father of, of six, a grandfather of seven. Nothing bothers me worse than incidences like that. But is what it shows is that we have such a cluster mess with our uh, policing system. There was how many police entities were involved there pointing the finger of who had the authority to do this or who had the right to do this other. Simply put, it should have been the only responsibility there should be the sheriff. Anything that happens within a county should be the responsibility of the sheriff. No federal or state agent agency, policing agency, federal or state, should be allowed to operate within a county without the authority and consent of the sheriff because he is the ultimate authority. If an FBI agent goes and screws something up, the public can't hold him accountable. Right. But we can hold the sheriff accountable. Yeah, no, I th- <clears throat> I think you're absolutely um, right, and I and I'm glad you know you mentioned Uvalde because I think you know I think that on that day time stood still for a lot of us here uh, in Texas. So, you know, I, I said before I'm a San Antonio resident. Uvalde is you know 80 miles and some change um, west of here, 
And yeah. of course, it's just, you know, absolutely horrific what happened there. 19 students and two teachers murdered um, in school. It's one of the most horrific things you can imagine. And, and you know, I, th- I think you're right in that, you know, you can hold the sheriff accountable and the, you know, the families in Uvalde do want to do that. And they've been, you know, taking steps on their own to try to ensure um, that that happens. But but what are what are some steps that you think we can take to help keep kids uh, safer in school? Because, you know, I, I think the conversation always gets brought back to, to gun control and then both sides kind of run off to their camps and their corners and then nothing nothing ultimately gets done to actually keep kids safe. So if you, you know, get elected governor in November, what, what are some steps you think that, that you would be able to take that, that would help keep kids safe in school? That is a a very loaded. And and if I may, and if I get off track of where you're trying to make me go, uh, bring me back on track, but let let me back off to, to holding the sheriff accountable. Mm -hmm. I, I am by no means am I saying that in this circumstances, we should hold the sheriff accountable uh, because the sheriff's powers, the sheriff's actual constitutional uh, authority has been usurped so bad that they need, the sheriffs need a governor that will stand up and, and tell the sheriffs you have full authority to exercise your constitutional right by being elected sheriff to arrest and throw in jail any agency. I don't care if it's IRS. I don't care if it's FBI. I don't care if it's DEA. I don't care what it is, mm-hmm. even a state agency, to arrest them and throw them in jail if they are operating in your county without your particular consent and supervision. But until they have that, until they have a governor that will actually back them with all the authority that, that, that is bestowed on them to do so, their hands are semi-tied. Why? Because the FBI and some of these federal agencies will come in bullying a sheriff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we see it over and over again of, of what happened. And this goes back in history, but what happened in, in, um, uh, Ruby Ridge, Idaho, what happened in Waco? You had the federal agencies coming in and, and usurping that authority that belonged to the sheriff. The sheriff could have just calmed those situations down and, and, and uh, resolved them. Now, going back to, uh, back to the question of, of uh, what should be done for, for the, the schools and going forward, you what you cannot do is have one mindset which is the same mindset that has created these problems there's there is almost no issue that faces today that we cannot track it back to the government actually creating the problem there is very few problems that we have right today including the war on drugs, including the immigration, including, that we cannot trace it back to the government creating the problem. Now, as far as what could be done in, in the uh, situations to try to prevent situations like Ovalde, you are absolutely correct. It was 
absolutely gut-wrenching. And I will never, ever say that I know what those parents are going through or went through. I can imagine. And I don't want my imagination even to go there. Mm -hmm. But the one thing, if everybody will notice, and they they criticized me, uh, uh, everybody criticized me from my own people to Democrats to Republicans of why I wasn't at Ubalde, why I wasn't interrupting press conferences, why I wasn't yelling this and that and the other. Because it's all Governor Abbott and Beto O'Rourke is all they did is try to get political capital off of grieving parents, off of grieving individuals. And I refused to do that. I, there, there was absolutely nothing that Beto O'Rourke should have said or, the, or anybody should have said that was appropriate at that time. It surely wasn't appropriate to point fingers and blame other people uh, for issues on hindsight. However, is what has to be done, not what should be done or could be done, what has to be done is we must empower the parents along with the uh, administrators and teachers with the guidance of the sheriff to institute their own safety protocols. We cannot have the federal government instituting our safety protocols and we cannot have the state government. We can have the federal government and the state government offering assistance Mm -hmm. in instituting those protocols. But we must not. As parents, they know best how to protect their children. In a society, we know best who the troublemakers are. When I was going to school, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. When I was going to school, anything ever happened in the school, you know, uh, somebody set off firecrackers or whatever, where's Mark? They knew who the troublemaker was. Uh, uh, you just know, uh, okay. And yes, I was blamed for a lot of things that I did not do. And, and I got away with a bunch of stuff too. So, but, I mean, it was a different time, but you still, the point is you still knew who was who in, in, in your, in your communities. And yes, there are some massive, big communities, but it is those communities that must instigate, like I say, along with the sheriffs, the the different protocols for safety. And once they are uh, instituted, the protocols for safety for each individual school, then if the parents have, uh, if they have school choice, if the dollars actually follow the students, then they can take into consideration the safety protocols that are put in place in the different schools, whether it's public or private, that they can follow and they can choose to to send their children to. Yeah, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm re- I'm really glad uh, you you mentioned school choice because I you know I I knew that you were a big proponent of school choice and I've seen here recently, particularly this past. A week or so, Greg Abbott has been hitting the campaign trail talking about school choice and kind of bringing that back to the 
the forefront of of his agenda. And, you know, I, I was wondering how your approach to school choice uh, would would differ from his. And I, I saw on your website you mentioned um, I believe a school choice law that was passed in Arizona um, that you really liked. I was wondering if you could, you know, tell us about how you would approach school choice and, and tell us a little bit about that plan in Arizona and, and, and why you like it. The, uh, the Republicans, Greg Abbott, they taunt school choice every, every election cycle. Mm-hmm. And then they do nothing about it. Keep in mind, the Republicans have controlled the state legislature, have controlled this state for over 20 years. And they have taunted school choice. But what have they done? You could roll back at 20 years ago of what the governor was taunting to get elected or reelected. And it was part of it was school choice. But they have they have actually done nothing when it comes to school choice. And it does take a, a collective effort to, to get that passed. But the governor has a lot of, not necessarily authority, but has a lot of bully pulpit power to actually rally the people to force the state to pass the laws to give school choice. School choice is simple. It's very simple. Like Arizona, they have school choice. Is all it does is it says that the the education dollars must follow the student, and the parents have the right to decide where those education dollars are spent. The um, if you have that now, keep this in mind. The Texas Constitution. Uh, mandates that the state provide efficient and free education. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you and I can both agree that the education they provide right now is neither efficient, efficient or free. However, nothing in the Constitution mandates that Texas citizens must be educated by the state. Mm. The state must provide the means for the parents to educate their children. But the parents are not obligated to have the the state schools or the state itself dictate how they educate their children. I don't know if I'm making any sense there. Uh, in, In other words, the state has a mandate to provide the means for the citizens of Texas to be educated financial means. Mm-hmm. But the citizens of Texas are not, there's no mandate that says they must be educated by the public school system. Right. They could be educated by however they see fit. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is a, <clears throat> I, I, I think this issue is a, a really good example of how bad being forced into this duopoly is because Democrats don't, you know, they, they don't, they don't touch school choice at all. You know, they believe the only option should be, you know, government funded public schools. And like you said, Republicans have been in charge in Texas for, for decades and they've, 
never passed it. And I figure a large part of that is because it's, you know, politically convenient for them to campaign on it. I mean, if you're a fan of school choice and, you know, you feel like your only option is, you know, Republican or Democrat, you're going to continue to vote Republican, but you're not actually going to get school choice because <laughs> it's not something that they're willing to actually make any any progress on. So it's a uh, it's really good to see you put this at the you know at the forefront of your campaign. And the Democrats and Republicans they they do this well. The Democrats are really blatant in 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 their support of public education. I mean they openly say we need to tax the people more and more and more money to pay the teachers more and more and more money. Uh, and at the same time, they say, well, the parents should have, uh, you know, the, the rights, but just not to educate their children how they see fit. Right. The parents, uh, any parent who wants vouchers are vultures. Those are words of a Democrat. Uh, those are the, the words of, of the Democrats of where they stand on on uh, school choice. They are totally against school choice at all costs. Why? Because it it messes with their their base. It messes with what they conceive is their base. My wife was a, a teacher for many, many years, and she would prefer teaching. She ta- taught in public schools and she taught in private schools. She would prefer teaching in private schools, the education level, according to her, was much higher, much greater. The pay for teachers was so much less because there was not school choice, because the dollars did not follow the students. If the dollars followed the students, the private schools would would pretty much dominate because they can institute the programs that best comply with and best suit the parents of their students. Yeah. And I, you know, I just want to let you know, we've got um, our, our, our little time notification reminder popped up on zoom. We've got about eight minutes left. I <clears throat> wish we could have gotten to this. I, I do want to ask you about the border just real quick here. It's a, <laughs> Tough issue to kind of condense down like that. But another really good issue where Republicans and Democrats go off to their camps and nothing ends up getting done. Democrats don't seem to have any plan uh, for reforming uh, our immigration laws and Republicans that, you know, they like to talk tough. But then at the end of the day, what do they really do that's that's productive in helping uh, uh, the people down there? What would your um, approach to uh, reforming our illegal immigration laws be and and how would it differ from your your opponents first off uh let me address two issues in one here mm-hmm. uh, immigration and uh the war on drugs shall we say okay mm-hmm. because, because they go hand in hand and these are two issues that the government have created themselves and they are political issues that each side derives a lot of political uh, ammunition or, uh, if you will, 
from those two issues. Right. The and like I say, they do go hand in hand. And, and I know these few minutes, probably I will not be able to do it justice, but I will I will try. The actual war on drugs is creating is a big part of the reason for our vast influx of immigrants at this particular time, because they are trying to escape violence in their own countries, created by the Democrats and Republicans want to say, created by the cartels. No, we created them. And this is going to be a bitter pill to swallow. But the drug problem and the cartels and all that, we created them. Why? Because we consume all those drugs. And as long as we are fighting a war against the trafficking of drugs and not getting to the core issue of why we as Americans consume this vast quantity of drugs, we will never solve the problem. We may eliminate one cartel or another cartel, but it will always increase as long as it's a supply and demand, as long as we consume the drugs and they are illegal to consume, we will have this big problem. Most of the people crossing the border are not here, contrary to popular belief, they're not rapists and murderers. They are simple people trying to to make a better life for themselves and their family. Something that I would expect you and I to do if the shoe was on the other foot. If we were fighting to, to protect our family, I would expect that we would fight to get into the U.S. at all costs. We need to make it easier for good, hardworking people to enter into this country legally. Mm-hmm. Right now, it costs between five and $10,000, and I don't have exact figures on this, to pay a, a coyote to come into the United States, okay? It would cost three, four times that if they tried to do it legally the way the system is now. We need comprehensive humanitarian immigration reform, and that has to come from the federal government. As governor, you can use all the powers at your disposal to force the federal government to comply with the laws that they should be upholding. Keep in mind, Texas is in a unique situation because unlike all the other states, Texas joined the union by treaty. And there are the treaty documents that can be enforced to force the federal government, or at least put a lot of pressure on the federal government, to reform our immigration laws, but they also have to take into consideration the needs of the employers in the United States. Look around the state of Texas. It is the employers cannot find workers to to fill the jobs. And, And a lot of people say they come to take our jobs. I defy anybody that lives in Texas that has lived here all their life I defy them to get up on a roof and lay shingles at a hundred degree temperature. Right. <laughs> they, they don't want to do it. They don't want to mow the lawns. They, 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 
It, it is a false notion that they are coming here to take our jobs. That is a false notion. They are coming here to take the jobs that we do not want to do, and they are grateful for them. But until we take all this into consideration, until we stop the politicizing, the duopoly control of this situation, it will continue as a political hot potato for both the Democrats and Republicans. Every cycle it comes up and every cycle they do nothing about it. Yeah, you you are you are absolutely right. Um, it does come up every single cycle, and yet it seems like every single cycle we are in the same boat that we were in, the you know two years ago, four years ago, whatever cycle you want to look at. And you know we're we're running out of time here, Mark. I I, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I you know I wanted to talk to you ever since I heard of you because, like I said, I. You really wasn't looking forward to having to cast a vote for uh, Governor Abbott or Beto in November. And now after talking to you, I, I feel a lot better about the up- upcoming election, knowing I have a, a pro-liberty candidate that I can you know, proudly cast a vote for. So, th- I mean, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for all that you do. If people listening want to learn more about Mark and his campaign, you can go to mark4gov.com or uh, follow him on Twitter, at Mark4Gov. And uh, just, again, really appreciate you coming on the show. I had a lot of fun. It was it was great to talk to you. Uh, I appreciate it very much, Taylor. And I just uh, want everybody to know that we have to fight for our liberties and our freedoms. And this November, you can uh, fight for your liberties and freedoms by voting Libertarian. Absolutely, as as they should. Again, thanks so much, Mark. I I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, Mike. Okay. All right. We are recording now. Jeff Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for being on, man. I, I really do appreciate it. I saw that, uh, you know, you, you interacted with a couple of the tweets, you know, that I put out for the Mark Tippett's episode. And, you know, after seeing, um, you know, after seeing you through that, I wanted to bring you on the show and wanted to start off by saying, uh, you know, congratulations on becoming the Brazos County Libertarian Party chair. Um, Thank you. I know it was relatively recently. I don't know when exactly you got elected, but I mean, congratulations. How does, how, how, how does that feel? Uh, well, that was back in March. Um, and it was kind of a weird situation because even though I had been the vice chair for the last two years, I had no idea that the chair was planning on not running for re-election. He just sort of made it a casual announcement at one of the meetings uh, in February. So it was kind of like, uh, didn't really have a lot of time to to think about it or consider it, but I just decided to uh, to go ahead and try to do it, and and I was successful. So <laughs> that's all there about. All there is to that. I'm I'm focusing on trying to get more people in, grow the party locally, and do whatever I can to you know try to get the message out. Yeah, no, it's it's really good too, man. I think um you know I think having having libertarians involved on a real you know local county level is just it, it, it's so important for having like a homegrown 
base, you know, that you can work with. But, you know, with you being the chair of the county party and, you know, you're also running for a state house and district 14. And, and I know that you've been uh, volunteering with uh, Mark Tippett's campaign, who is on the show recently. I mean, how do you, you know, we were just talking before this, you've always got busy weeks. I mean, how do you find the time to do all these different things that you're involved with? Well, it's, uh, it's not easy because <laughs> I have a full-time job like a lot of people do. Uh, but thankfully I have the kind of job that I'm not constantly, um, busy with work. I kind of stuff kind of comes and goes throughout the day. So at my office, I can do some of the libertarian party activities when I'm at work, which helps because, uh, you know, it's, if I only could do it when I was off of work, I would have limited hours to do it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's juggling a lot of different things and uh, having to make sure that I have alerts and things set. So I'm reminded of all sorts of online meetings and all that sort of stuff. Uh, sometimes I just end up having to do more than one thing at once. Like, uh, in addition to what you mentioned, I'm also on the state libertarian committee for the first time. I was also elected to that in April with the state convention. So I'm one of the mm-hmm. two representatives for Senate district five. And so I've got something related to my duties for that coming up Tuesday night where I'm going to be interviewing somebody who's a, potentially a, a future county chair in another county in our district. And at the same time I'm doing that, um, Mark Tibbetts is going to be doing a ask me anything online stream. So I'm going to be monitoring uh, online for questions for that at the same time. So already there's an example of something where I'm kind of having to multitask. Yeah. What, uh, what, what do you do for a, like a, a, a quote unquote normal job, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. Um, I'm an office manager, uh, work for a company that owns, uh, 25 different, uh, subway sandwiches locations. So we okay. have, yeah, uh, different places in the state of Texas, but, um, here in Bryan College Station, uh, all of the ones around here and then several of the ones in neighboring towns. So I do a bunch of paperwork related to that, you know, HR related stuff mostly and just, uh, yeah, <laughs> juggling paperwork and answering phones and whatever else I need to do. Golly, man. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I don't know how you do it. All the different things you've got going on. I have, I have no idea. And you, you do all of this stuff out of, uh, out of college station there. Yep. Yep. What's uh what, what's College Station like? I've heard of. I, I've been living in Texas for a little over a year. I'm I'm in San Antonio. I uh, haven't made my way up to to College Station area. What's it like up there? Well, uh, it's a college town, as you can probably tell by the name of the city. Uh, you know, it's where Texas A and M is. So, so much of the everything in town is revolves around the university and every and events that are going on there, but. You know, over the years, we've added some things that were not specifically university related. So, like, we've got the George Bush Presidential Library, and that brings some people to town. And, oh, wow. you know, there's some other, uh, there are things, you know, in Bryan and College Station that aren't directly related to the university. So, there, there's, it, it's, um, you know, most of the school year, uh, pretty heavy traffic <laughs> because of the amount of people for the size of the town we have. Um, yeah. There's always construction going on, always new housing going up because ever since they uncapped the uh, student maximum at 
the A&M, uh, you know, we get more and more students every year. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot of that. Uh, so it's, you know, dodging, uh, bad drivers and, you know, all that kind of wonderful stuff. Oh man. Yeah. But there's a lot kids. of good things. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, we, of course, as we've grown, we've gotten, you know, a lot more schools and parks and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of families here and a lot of, uh, a lot of people, you know, rate the schools pretty highly and say that it's fairly safe compared to some other places of our size. So there's, there's a lot of positive things. I, I like a lot of things about this area. I've stayed here. I've been here 40 years now. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I actually get down to San Antonio quite a bit. That's where my mother lives and her side of the family is from. So, um, I, I'm there, you know, at least a few times a year and sometimes more depending on what's going on. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful city. I had never, um, I had never even visited before I moved down, but, uh, I I've really enjoyed it, uh, so far, just renewed my lease a little while back. Really love it. I, I didn't know, I had never been up to college station area, but I guess this past weekend was like the, the move in weekend for mm-hmm. A&M so I got a lot of like weird tweets on my timeline talking about like how bad the traffic in College Station is and it's still better than Austin though <laughs> oh oh yeah I yeah I, I just helped a friend move from San Antonio to Austin and I've, I've been up in the city a couple of times now and every time I'm there the the traffic is just brutal and that stretch from San Antonio to Austin uh yeah is not not really a lot of fun either. Yeah, I've but, driven it many times. Oh, it's just brutal. But man, you're um, I mean, you're you're about as heavily involved with with libertarian politics as I can imagine one person being with all these different things you're juggling. How how did you get your start in politics, just in general? Well, that's uh that's kind of one of those, uh, you want the short version or the, or the really long version kind of questions. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> I mean, I, when I, I tell people, cause there's sometimes those, one of those questions will come up on uh, Twitter or Facebook or something. And they'll say like, what's your earliest memory, uh, you know, or the earliest memory that you can put a date on. And for me, that was, uh, the inauguration of Ronald Reagan, because obviously I know that happened on a certain day. So I know that it was January 20th, 1981. Uh, And I remember asking my mother, like, basically what was going on. You know, I was four years old at the time or, or, yeah, four. Uh, So I'm, you know, saying, and she said, oh, there were, we have a new president. And, you know, the old president, Jimmy Carter, was there at the inauguration. So I said, well, did he not want to be president anymore? She said, no, he, he lost the election. So he's not allowed to be president anymore. And I remember thinking, that's not fair. <laughs> so one of my first uh, connections with politics was like how unfair it was that the president wanted to stay and they kicked him out. But, you know, there, so that was another, my mother used to say that, you know, the thing that she always uh, respected about me from an early age when I was a kid was my sense of justice. So I think that was probably part of it, but um, fast forward like seven years and my parents both went to uh, precinct meetings on the night of the primary election. And my mom went to the Democrat Party one and my dad went to the Republican. So I had to choose, you know, which one I wanted to go to. And uh, I picked Republican 
again, not because at 12 years old, I had any kind of profound idea as to what the party stood for, but just, I just decided, you know, I liked that one better at the time for whatever reason. Ironically, in today's world where they talk about Republicans are red and Democrats are blue, mm-hmm. at that time, part of the reason I picked Republican is that I remembered that I had seen the pictures on TV of the candidates and the Republicans were blue. So I liked blue better than red. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked it anyway. Um, but over the next few years after that, you know, I kind of had that kid growing up kind of casual. I would see the news. I would see what was going on with politics, but it wasn't obviously I, w- I didn't know all the details of everything or understand what was going on. But, um, you know, as I got older, I paid more attention to 92 election. I was a junior in high school and I voted for Ross Perot in our little mock election. Um, and uh, so that was my first example of like being actually crushed as I watched election returns come in. He didn't win a single state. And I'm like, man, mm-hmm. this is terrible. Uh, and then a couple of years later in 94 was my first actual, uh, election I got to vote in. I turned 18 in August of 94. And, uh, that was the year in Texas where, uh, George W. Bush was challenging Ann Richards for the governor spot. And I didn't oh, like wow. either one of them <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I actually grew to like George W. quite a bit after that. But at, at that time, I want, you know, one of the things he really campaigned on was bringing back the death penalty. And I was, I was against the death penalty, so I didn't want him to do that. But I didn't like Ann Richards either. Uh, so anyway, we can't come to election time, November 94. And I got my ballot and I looked at the candidates and there was another guy on the ballot for governor named Carrie Ellers, the libertarian candidate. And I said, I don't know anything about this guy, but I'm voting for him. (laughs) So (laughs) in my very first election, I voted for a libertarian. Wow. Knowing anything about what they stood for. And, uh, a couple years later in 96, uh, I, well, actually, you know, what happened in the, in the fall 94 election is that there was the first time the Republicans uh, took over the house in 40 years or whatever it was. So there was this big, um, you know, Republican revolution and all that. And I, like a lot of people got swept up in that, you know, thought these politicians actually mean what they say. They're going to reduce government and all this, you know, change everything in the way that everything works. And, you know, that lasted a few months before they, it's people just sort of fell into the same old habits that they always did as right. far as politicians in Washington. So, I was very disillusioned by all that, but for a while there, I was following very closely. Like that was at the time where they first started putting stuff online, like um, congressional uh, debates and and testimonies and stuff like that. So I would get on there and I'd actually read like full bills and committee reports and things like that. This is, you know, at 18, 19 years old. So uh, obviously I was a bit of a geek for that kind of stuff while there were other people out partying, you know, reading this stuff. So (laughs) it gives you an indication. But but, uh, come, you know, uh, election time in 96 or primary season, and I went to, you know, I kind of had, I remembered what I did back in 88 with with my dad, and I was like, well, do they still do this precinct meeting on election night? And sure enough, they did. So I went to that for the Republican primary, and, you know, they asked if anybody wanted to be a delegate to the county convention, so I'm like, sure, I'll be a delegate to the county convention, so I did, I went there, and in my usual style, I was not going to just sit there and not do anything, uh, they had debates on 
the platform planks or if anybody wanted to like speak for or against a part of the platform well there was a part on there about uh, a constitutional amendment to make english the official language so i got to speak against that plank and i debated al jones who was the sitting brazos county judge at the time because he spoke in favor of it and i spoke against so um, but I remember that he respected my viewpoint, even though he disagreed with me when I made the point that, you know, isn't it the Democrats that are always wanting to get more and more federal control of things? And then we've got this amendment saying the federal government is going to tell you what the official language has to be for everything. And he said, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so that kind of, I think, shows a couple of things about I me, mean, one that I'm willing to get involved in stuff. But I also wasn't afraid to, you know, get up and debate an elected official on something. You know, I'm not going to say I didn't have a little bit of fear, but I mean, I was willing to do it. Um, and that same year, later in the year, I heard Harry Brown for the first time, who was the Libertarian nominee for president in 96. And um, he was on like a PBS show, I think, or something. And they interviewed him where they actually give him more than like a tiny soundbite. You know, he got to actually answer some questions. Mm-hmm. And I was impressed with a lot of the things he said, you know, he was, he had his book out where it was like huge tax cuts now, huge spending cuts now, you know, and I'm like, you know, this is the kind of thing that the Republicans campaigned on, but then it didn't actually deliver on. Right. So obviously that appealed to me. So I, I sent off and I actually uh, joined the national libertarian party uh, for whatever the dues was then like 15 bucks or something like that. And so I got the, paper newsletter for a year from for doing that you know come 97 i didn't renew it and i moved on to whatever it is i was doing at that point in my life but but i never i never completely um disengaged from politics i just obviously had you know plenty of other interests and by the time uh year 2000 rolled around um i had a young child um <laughs> so that changed my life <laughs> my focus was on that but uh, at that point, I decided, uh, well, I was fed up with the Republicans. I, I guess I'd never really uh, had pursued much with the Libertarians. So I thought, well, at that point, I'll, I'll see about the Democrats. So I actually participated in the uh, process of becoming a delegate to the county and the, for the Democrats also. And they, in my area, they're way outnumbered by the Republicans. So uh, they actually, you know, gave me the opportunity to be a state delegate uh because you know they didn't have a lot of people volunteering for that right but i didn't end up getting to go uh you know mostly financial reasons uh and uh, having a young child uh, i just you know didn't couldn't afford to for all the babysitting and to be able to get up to wherever it was dallas or fort worth somewhere i think um anyway so i didn't make it to that but at that point i had in a way participated in republican democrat and libertarian parties um and, and, you know, in my elections, I had always tried to keep an open mind and vote for the individual rather than the party. So there was almost never like they, they had the straight ticket party, uh, straight party ticket voting. And but they had the thing where you could select that and then still select individual people. So there were times wow. that I would do that. And but, you know, I never was like there was never a ballot where I said, well, this is just a vote all the all people of this party. The irony of that is that by the time that we got rid of straight ticket voting in Texas, 
uh, I had become fed up enough with Republicans and Democrats that I swore I wasn't ever going to vote for many of them again. And so at this point, I probably would vote straight Libertarian Party if such a thing exists, but it doesn't anymore. <laughs> right. But anyway, it was uh, as 2020, you know, so many years later when I finally actually officially joined the Libertarian Party in the sense that I showed up to the precinct meeting, precinct convention for the Libertarian Party and actually affiliated with the party. And, you know, by the end of that week, we had our county convention and I got elected vice chair. So, again, another example of where I just kind of jumped in <laughs> was like, not only am I joining this, but, you know, already put me in a leadership position off the bat, not having any idea what I was doing. Um, so that that's, as you can tell, kind of a, a theme of my life is that I, I, I volunteer for things. I jump into stuff and then I try to figure it out while after I've already uh, committed myself to something yeah it, it doesn't sound like you half-ass a whole lot you know like you've you know you, you you've been with the democrats the republicans and the libertarians and it seems like each time wh whichever path you're on you you went all in on it you didn't you know you didn't just put one foot in and one foot out i mean it seems like you really really committed and, and even yeah. early on you know like your um you know like your willingness to to kind of think outside the box and not be forced into a duopoly, right? Like you said, you know, vote, you know, you might vote mostly one way, but you did usually split your ticket some and, and, and voting for Ross Perot like you did or voting libertarian in the, in the Bush Richards election. I mean, it always, you know, I mean, hearing your story, it seems like you know, it might've taken you a while to officially join the libertarian party, but, but the signs were there early on, it seems. Yeah, I've always been independent. I've always been a contrarian. Uh, at the same time, I'm the kind of dork that watches a politician give a speech and gets emotionally involved. So I I don't entirely fall for things like I did when I was 18, 19, where I'd actually, you know, believe in somebody enough to actually get, you know, really upset when they uh, lost or if they won and didn't do what they said they were going to do. And now I'm much more cynical about it. I don't I don't believe, uh, you know, any politicians really going to do 100 percent of what they promise they're going to. But, um, yeah, as far as getting involved, I'm like, why be there if you're not going to do that? I mean, I just that's always been the way that I was like, it's not doesn't mean I don't, you know, observe things and kind of sit back. Sometimes I don't always speak up in every situation because some of it is when it comes to committee meetings and conventions and stuff. A lot of it is just sort of observing the process and seeing how things are done. So, you know, I recently was after I was a state delegate, then I was a national delegate to the convention in Reno. So I had a lot of fun there, but I wasn't getting up on the microphone and speaking, you know, and things like that. So, you know, I don't regret that. I could have done that, but I figured I was, I was enjoying things enough participating in everything that I was doing that, um, you know, I don't, uh, I didn't think I had to do that, but I'm not afraid to do that if I need to. So that's that's kind of the deal with me is I feel like there are things where I know clearly here's what I want to do. Here, here's what I believe in and, and I can speak to it. And then there's other times where, you know, I'm kind of looking at it like I can see both sides of this or I'm interested in hearing different points of view and kind of figuring out where I fall on this. So I'm not an ideologue. I've never have been. I've had like kind of basic principles that I believe in. And then mm -hmm. beyond that, I'm really more of a pragmatist in a lot of ways. I feel like, you know, do things that actually work. And that's another way 
of how I got to the Libertarian Party because I saw demonstrated over and over again that the way the Democrats and Republicans operated was never going to bring more liberty, less government, more freedom. Like all those things were just slogans and buzzwords that were used by the politicians to try to, you know, secure their own power. And right. so I looked at it and said, you know, the only the only way that those things are actually going to happen is somebody who is committed to that as their basic philosophy. It has to be everything else is subordinate to that. You know, your goal, it's like Barry Goldwater said back in 1964, you know, I'm not running to pass laws, I'm running to repeal them. You know, that has to be the attitude as like an actual, actual real change, you know, turning the ship around that's going the wrong direction, not continuing to attach band-aids to the leaks in the boat. It's not working. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think that's a pretty, um, like you said, a very realistic, a very healthy way, uh, you know, to look at it was, was, was that mindset, what caused you to want to run, uh, for state house in this cycle or what, you know, what compelled you to do that? I'm wondering. So that's another thing where I've always, um, you know, kind of had the fantasy or idea that at some point I would run for public office of some sort. You know, probably a lot of kids have had that fantasy about running for president or, you know, something like that. And I'm no exception on that. Um, but, you know, before I do my presidential campaign, I figured, you know, I got to start a little bit, uh, a little bit lower. Um <laughs> Actually, in the beginning, I guess, you know, the end of last year, when it was coming up on the, you know, deadlines for candidates and our county chair and uh, I would say a very active member of our county party, uh, Clyde Garland, um, who's run for office many times before, he basically started recruiting candidates and his purpose was to actually to challenge those specific uh, laws that they passed about the filing fees. So he wanted candidates locally that would run and agree and that would not pay the filing fee. So basically it was like either we, we all get on the ballot or none of us do sort of all go down with the ship kind of thing. Right. So I was among the people uh, the end of last year who, who volunteered to do that. So then it was just a matter of what office I run for. And I actually wanted to run for one of the county commissioner spots because one of the things that I was that I was passionate about that really drove me to get to want to uh, run against people was in 2020 the way that the government just became so authoritarian in the name of virus mitigation you know the the everything became about we got to shut down society in order to contain this virus and it, it just, you know, all of our freedoms and civil liberties be damned, you know, none of that is, is important anymore. And it's one thing for the Democrats to go along with that or kind of establishment Republican types. But when you have an area like I live in that's seen as conservative Republican and you have those same people that are elected officials that also just rolled over and accepted all of that, um, from you know the state level on down to local people i mean they had a county commissioners meeting where they didn't have any kind of public hearings they didn't have um, any discussion it was just well these, this is what you know cdc or or state authorities and things are saying so we're just going to vote it all in a rush job tonight and accept all these emergency things and i thought that was a terrible way to 
approach it. And I was really irritated, <laughs> to put it mildly, by that. Oh, yeah. So I thought, well, I'll run for county commissioner, you know. Well, the problem with that is that the way that they do the uh, county commissioner and justice, the peace and a few things like that is they, they have uh, four precincts in College Station uh, or in the county. And they uh, they alternate, you know, every two years, like which ones are up for election. So, uh -huh. one, you know, it's the even districts one year and then it's the odd ones another year. So my. Uh, Commissioner precinct is not up for election in 2022. It won't be again until 24. So, mm -hmm. because I wasn't going to move out of my precinct, and they have a you know residency requirement, you know, you have to live in the precinct you run in. Uh, well, that was out. So, I had to look at what else was possible, and I didn't. I kind of looked at the duties of you know if I actually got elected to the position, would I be able to do whatever that position was? So there were things like county treasurer and clerk and and uh, uh, stuff like that, where I'm like, ah, I don't really, wouldn't really want to do that job or know how to do that job. Um, and so ultimately I said, well, there's still one more local race that even though technically it's a state position, it's a, it's entirely local because our state house district is entirely within the city limits of Bryan College Station in Brazos County, mm. which obviously that's not true for everybody's state house district. Some of them include a ton of counties, but Ours, just the way that it's drawn is it's just Brian College Station. So it's a local position that reports to somewhere else, if you know what I mean. So, right. And I thought, you know, this actually works because, uh, you know, I feel like a representative of here, you know, I've lived here for 40 years, like I said, what better representative, you know, could I be? Somebody who has grown up here, gone to the schools, raised my own son here, you know, also worked here and, and he came up in the schools here. And so I'm like, I have all this experience living here. I feel like I could do that job representing. The only, uh, the real downside to it is because of the way that for whatever reason it's structured, the, uh, the salary for that position is not very much. So it's right. kind of a, it's kind of one of those things where I would take a severe pay cut if I actually got elected. <laughs> but, so we've often had people in that position that have the type of jobs where they're like business owners or things like that, where they can take, you know, six months off of their uh, job and, and stay in Austin and go to legislature meetings and all that and not worry about, you know, losing their job. Uh, so obviously uh, if I were to be elected, I'd, I'd have some decisions to make when it comes to that. But, but yeah, that was ultimately I, I told Clyde and, and told Bruce, our previous county chair, that I'll run for state representative. And uh, so um, I filled out the paperwork and and I actually assisted in getting some of the other candidates paperwork done because I'm also a notary public. So I, I did that paperwork and mm -hmm. and then uh, we got all that turned in and then we had our county convention and I was nominated. So that's how that happened. Yeah, no, that's... um. <clears throat> Yeah, that's really awesome. And I, I think the I think the COVID restrictions and, and everything that came along with that was uh it was real eye opening for a lot of people, I think. I, me me included. I was uh very much so one of them. I you know, you never really thought about how quickly our civil liberties could just be snatched up with the stroke of a pen or, you know, a decision made overnight without voter involvement or or anything like that. I mean, just to, you know, to go from living in, 
in a free and open society to, you know, not being able to stay out past a certain time or having to wear a mask everywhere you go or not being able to go into certain places unless you have, you know, like a fully updated vaccine card. And I mean, it really, really, really blew a lot of people's minds, um, myself included. Now, we don't have a lot of time uh, left here. Our our Zoom timer has started its little countdown, but I I did have a couple other things I wanted to ask you. Um, Maybe, you know, one of the more important ones being, you know, what, what are kind of the three big issues that that you're focusing on on your campaign and uh, how, how is that resonating with voters? Have you found? Well, um, I would say that as I kind of hinted at earlier, the number one thing is reducing basically the size and the power of government and making it actually representative again, making uh, bringing the power back to the people, so to speak is really the top issue. Everything else sort of revolves around that. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, when it comes to those type of restrictions and other things, you know, there was an emergency powers act that they used to justify a lot of that. So I would want to repeal that. I would want to repeal um, all of the laws that are in place that limit consenting adults making agreements and transactions. It's amazing how many things that the government wants a part in either to tell you flat out you can't do it or you can do it but you have to have a permit or a license or pay us this amount of of fees and you know property taxes another big thing uh people are uh taxed in so many ways where it's tax on top of tax mm. you know and if you leave something to somebody else as a gift or in your will then you're you know taxed on top of that and so there's just so much uh bureaucracy taxes layers and layers of government control and you know my biggest thing is just trying to reduce as much of that as possible so you know when it comes to individual legislation our representative is uh, john rainey a republican and he you know comes out and says here's what i accomplished in the last legislature and it's a list of new legislation that's passed new bills And I would have the complete opposite approach. If I have something like that at the end of my term, it would be, here's the things I got repealed. (laughs) Here's the things (laughs) that I got rid of that made you freer. So everything is about what can I do to make, to give you more freedom? You know, whatever it is that you're uh, unable to do because there's government in the way, I want to help that get out of your way so you can do it. So as far as resonating with voters, basically every time that I hear someone in a conversation where they're complaining about something that they're unable to do or uh, regulations they've had to follow or fees and taxes and things they've had to pay, you know, that's where I'm like, well, vote Miller, you know, (laughs) there's your way out of that. You've got a choice. You got somebody who's on your side. You know, small businesses that have, you know, either lost their business completely or been put in a really bad financial situation because of all the extra things they've had to do because of, you know, government restrictions or regulations. Every time I heard my boss complain about, well, we've got to do this and this on on remodeling a building because, you know, there's all of these codes we have to follow. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that every single uh Uh, city code or things like that is is all a bad idea but there's still so much that isn't about actual safety it's about somebody's getting paid for this 
somebody, uh, you know, is the one that says, oh, you have to pay this and get this permit and do these things. And, you know, and it's it's all about sort of maintaining that bureaucracy and those layers of control. So those are the type of things that I take every opportunity to say, if, if you had me in Austin, I'd be fighting to end that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really awesome. And I, I have to imagine that voters really like hearing a message like that. You know, I talked with uh, with Mark Tippett's on, on our episode about, you know, just the, the state of Texas politics as a whole. I feel like there's so many races, um, in particular, the the Beto Abbott one where, you know, there's a lot of people that look at both of those choices and go, God, you know, I I don't want to vote for either of those guys. And you see that replicated just down the ticket. I mean, pretty much wherever you go. And, you know, I just, I hope people start, you know, doing their own research and, and looking into libertarian candidates and other independent and third party candidates and just know that they're, they don't, they don't have to be forced into this duopoly. The, the system is set up in that way to make them feel trapped in one of the two parties, but, you know, I, 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 I like taking, you know, the opportunity on my show and in my personal life to let people know, like, hey, you, you know, you're not stuck with those two shitty choices. You know, you <laughs> you can vote libertarian if you want to feel good about your vote and support a, you know, support pro-liberty candidates. And we, we yeah, are about people to... around here. People around here are always, uh, you know, still vote Republican because they're scared of what would happen if the Democrats took over. Well, the whole point to me is. Let's bring the power back locally so you don't have to worry about who has the majority in Austin because they won't have that much control over you, so it won't matter as much. Right, and that that, that ultimately should be the goal. We've got about two minutes left here on our timer. Uh, Jeff, I, I really do appreciate you coming on to the show. I wanted to give you these last two minutes just to promote anything you want to promote, a website, any upcoming events, uh, anything like that that you've got. Well, so we're going to find out, you know, we're recording this on a Sunday and we're going to find out Friday whether or not that I'm actually going to be on the ballot for state rep, because that's when we'll at least hopefully find out about the results of the uh, of the Republicans lawsuit against us. We didn't even get into that uh, in this. But um, anyway, they're trying to get 23 candidates off the ballot, including me, because of not paying those filing fees. So uh, we'll find out the results of that and because that's the deadline as far as getting the ballots going and once we do if i actually know that i will be on the ballot that's when i'll do things like websites or other things you know really kind of kick off the, the campaign in a more uh serious manner uh so as far as now anyone who wants to can follow me on twitter at real jeffster uh and yes i call myself that because i had the screen name jeffster before any of these other people did and some people you know they come along and they try to use my name so Right. Had to had to make sure people knew I was the real one, um, <laughs> and yeah, um, coming up uh, this Tuesday night too, the twenty third, uh, we're doing a Mark Tippett's uh, Ask Me Anything live stream. So anybody, um, hopefully, will uh, tune into that, ask him questions, and I'll be part of doing all that stuff as well. So, uh, vote Miller, vote Libertarian. <laughs> couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. Vote Miller, vote Libertarian, vote Mark Tippett's, and all those other great Libertarian candidates. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Take it easy. Hey, everyone. Taylor here, and you're listening to the Bonfire Briefing Podcast. Today, my guest is the vice chair of the Tennessee Libertarian Party and the libertarian candidate for governor in Tennessee, LaMichael Wilson. 
We talked about ballot access reform, high-speed rail, Roe v. Wade, and more. Hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, we're good to go. Michael Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh yeah, absolutely. The pleasure is all mine. When you um, when you followed the podcast and, and I saw that notification, you know, I saw you were running for governor in Tennessee. I think I told you I'm I'm living in Texas now, but I'm uh, I'm, I'm from Tennessee, and uh, I saw that you were you know libertarian running for governor there. I was like, I've got to get this guy on the podcast. You know, I mean that's that checks a lot of boxes for me, you know, and what I'm looking for, uh, personally, you know, in, um, a governor candidate, of course, I don't live in Tennessee anymore, but, you know, it seemed like we'd be able to have a pretty interesting conversation, I think. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share, uh, my vision, uh, with you and the listeners, uh, as it relates to how we can grow Tennessee, how we can, um, reduce government and and uh, increase the liberties and freedoms of the people that reside in Tennessee, as well as business owners, and various public and private sectors. Yeah, and you know, on that, I kind of wanted to start off just by asking you, you know, I, you know, I did some research on you before you came on, and you've done couple different things in life, retired pastor, restauranteur. I wanted to know what, uh, and, I, and I know you ran for uh, mayor of Memphis uh, previously in the last cycle. So I was just wondering how, I wanted to hear from you in your words, you know, your, your journey to um, launching this campaign for governor. Um, well, it was never like a life goal to be a politician or to, uh, to run for governor. I did pastor when I was in Chicago, and um, then I came to uh, back to Memphis, which is my hometown, and I start, uh, opened my restaurant there. I started my restaurant in 2005 when I left the City Colleges of Chicago, and when I came back to Memphis, I opened it in Memphis, and what I saw was uh, a marginalization and disenfranchisement of the people from governmental resources, and um, it was disheartening because individuals who had been elected to uh, raise the floor for the people that live in the city were not doing that. So um, I decided to run for mayor and much of all of the positions that I've ever had, they ultimately have one thing in common and that it's being a nurturer. So um, being a pastor at one time, uh, you nurture the people who are your congregants and they attach themselves to the uh, uh, ministry. And um, so I ran for mayor, which is another uh, nurturing position. And what made me, what led me to run for governor is once again, the people uh, looking at how many people have been marginalized by state policies uh, that, you know, it, it just seemed to be most apropos to do that. And primarily because as the vice chair of the Libertarian Party of Tennessee, we saw the marginalization uh, specifically with us as we, we're considered to be a minor party. 
and state law allows Republicans, Democrats, and independents to get ballot access with only 25 signatures. But for libertarians and uh, any other minor party, uh, we're required by law to get 2.5% of the number of people who voted in the last gubernatorial election. So this election cycle, that would have been 56,083 signatures for us to be on the ballot. And uh, what, what that does is it allows people to be able to go to the poll, see on that ballot um, our designated uh, uh, letter, which is the L, and you know what the candidate stands for. As an independent, you really don't know what individuals stand for. So there's a recognizable competition uh, when we have our uh, party affiliation listed. That was one. The other, though, is the duopoly, be it the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, operate in a, in a capacity to uh, eliminate any type of competitive uh, recognize, recognizable competition. So uh, that then disenfranchises the vote. It, it, uh, it suppresses the vote because individuals may not want to associate themselves with Republicans and Democrats. And by their option, uh, with their candidate, uh, candidate option not being uh, available, then oftentimes they don't uh, engage in the uh, voting process. And that was part of the main reason uh, that I decided to run for governor uh, is that we want to be able to affect ballot access so that all candidates have equal access, not equitable, but equal access, uh, that if it is that the number will be 2.5%, then everybody has to get 2.5%. Or if it's going to be 25 signatures, then all uh, candidates should be able to get 25 signatures for whatever uh, race that they run throughout the entire state. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, too, because when I was uh, doing some research to prepare for this podcast, that was the thing that that blew my mind. I read, uh, I think Liberty Whip had a wrote a Substack article um, about you, and it, it, it laid out exactly what you just did, that independents, Republicans and Democrats only need 25 signatures to get on the ballot. And you had to get, you know, like you said, I think 50, 50 something thousand and that that blew my mind i mean it's you know it's obviously you well, one it's obviously unfair and two it's obviously something that you know like you said the duopoly that we have between the democratic party and the republican party you know it's easy to see why they don't want you know the the libertarian party or any other third party candidates gaining any momentum and threatening the structure that that they've built up I, i'm i'm curious did you did you know before you ran that you would need to get you know, 50,000 plus signatures to get on the ballot? Or was that something you found out in the process? Yes, uh, very much aware that we would have to get that 56,000 signatures. Um, and part of part of our conversation as a state party was being able to sue the, uh, the state for equal uh, ballot access. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, we believe that it would be advantageous to uh, to show the judge uh, how difficult it is to acquire 56,000 signatures. So that was part of the uh, the push 
in running for office is being able to show a judge how difficult it is, how challenging it is to get 56,000 signatures. But um, I, I love competition. So I was in to get the 56,000. And uh, it then puts us in a catch 21 because uh, if we get the 56,000, then a judge could uh, potentially say, well, if you got the signatures, then I don't see what the problem is. So mm. it's still um, problematic, though, that uh, no candidate or any candidate that is outside of being a Republican, Democrat or independent has to jump through hoops and uh, uh, leap over hurdles in order to be able to uh, represent present the people that would ideally vote for them. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, it's especially relevant now in a time where, you know, I, I feel like maybe more people than ever are looking for something other than, you know, a, a Democrat or a Republican, you know, they, they don't feel represented by either party. I'm, I very much so consider myself, uh, in, you know, in that same boat. And, and like you said, you know, with, um, you know, like, yeah, you can run as an independent, but like you said, there's nothing on the ballot that gives people any indication uh, of what you believe, you know, an independent could, that, that could be anybody, you know, running exactly. on that ballot. It could be any, any random person that got 25 signatures can run as an independent. You don't know anything about who they are. Exactly. Or what they stand for as a libertarian. Um, and I've had individuals ask me questions about platform and things of that nature. And at the end of the day, my platform aligns itself with the national platform. I have been endorsed to run by the Libertarian Party of Tennessee. So as it relates to uh, certain issues, my, my, the platform is going to directly uh, mirror what the national party has established for um, our, our positions on certain issues and concerns. And uh, beyond that, I believe that the people elect individuals into office so that they can best advocate and, um, and structure policies around what it is that they would have. And that's why I believe that more legislation should be done at the local level. Uh, you elect city and county uh, officials, those are the individuals that should uh, be able to construct the 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 uh, the legislation for a particular area, and not necessarily the state. Oh, absolutely. Um, I I was one. I was curious. Um, you know, you're you're the vice chair of the Libertarian Party uh, there in Tennessee, and you know, you said you know that your platform largely reflects the libertarian party as a whole you know i'm curious how did you get into being a libertarian i mean it's you know it's how did you find yourself you know exploring libertarianism and then you know how did that lead you to becoming the vice chair of the state party there i um was a libertarian before i knew anything about the libertarian party mm -hmm. um i had already formulated my my own belief system and um, oftentimes what happens is individuals will assume the political affiliation of their household. So I grew up in uh, a democratic household. People around me were Democrats. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that is what seemed to be what was supposed to be common. And I did not find my place there. Um, many of the uh, 
the uh, uh, platform items for the Republican Party, I did uh, embrace, but I did not embrace the party. It did not feel comfortable. So once I started looking at other parties and uh, looked at the Green Party and uh, the Libertarian Party, Constitutional Party, and things of that nature, um, I thought that my personal beliefs aligned uh, more with the Libertarian Party because at the end of the day, I just believe in minimum government and more freedoms and liberties given to the people. And that's what the party stands for. Right. And, and that's why um, I, I think that, you know, this uh, ballot access reform that you're pushing for is so important because I feel like there are so many people that are in that same boat that, that you're in, that I'm in. I mean, there's so many people that just don't feel represented by either party and, you know, having libertarian candidates on the ballot, not restricted by these ridiculous uh, laws that are in place is, is really important for people to know who's running. And then, you know, people do their own research, people, you know, they, they, they vote for a lot of people vote for the candidate, not necessarily the, you know, the party next to their name. So, I mean, people would be able to look up these libertarian candidates who are running and see that, oh, hey, there is a party that's, you know, speaking up for what, what I believe in, you know, like you said, limited government, um, more freedoms, that kind of, I mean, that's a, that's a message that resonates with, um, with everyone. For sure. I mean, at the end of the day, um, it consumers individuals people should be able to make the choices for their lives um i own a restaurant and uh government will will make laws or ordinances that uh dictate what we can and cannot do when at the end of the day uh people should be able to make a choice whether they want to patronize a business that um, that either supports what they want or does not. It should not be government legislating that. Um, I always uh, address the analogy or the situation with seatbelt laws. Mm-hmm. We all buy our own cars. Uh, uh, we know that seatbelts can either um, provide safety um, or uh, it can provide some safety measures and um, we know we know what the hazards are that are are you know with wearing without wearing seatbelts. So, um, but at the end of the day, it is the individual's choice that is in that vehicle to make that decision. Because now what we see is uh, law enforcement officers uh, issuing tickets for not wearing a seatbelt. So there's a penalty for um, not wearing a seatbelt, and oftentimes those penalties are issued in uh, areas of uh, poverty. Some communities have um, a higher poverty. Uh, there are more tickets written in those areas than they are. So it's not equitable um, across the board. And um, But at the end of the day, it should be a decision that the individual wants to make and not be financially pe- uh, penalized uh, for that. Same difference with um, I stand for eliminating uh, money bail on certain type of uh, infractions. Uh, we are penalizing individuals for living in poverty. Uh, you know, for a case of minor possession, 
and you you give an individual a bond of ten thousand dollars, they may not be able to afford that. So consequently, they end up staying in jail, staying incarcerated. They lose their jobs. They're not able to provide for their families, and there's absolutely no reason because they put they pose absolutely no risk to the community or or, or themselves and. You know, government needs to step back and allow people to be able to be free to live their lives without the uh, oversight that government is doing. Oh, absolutely. And, and those are two, you know, really great um, examples of where government is, you know, I mean, very clearly overstepping their boundary. And like you said, penalizing people for not being able to afford those tickets and, and that bail. Um one, one great thing I love about your website, actually, is that when you, you scroll down a little, your website literally has uh, a Venn diagram. And it, it, you know, it shows kind of where you agree with the Democrats, where you agree with the Republicans, and then in the middle, kind of more uh, where there's some common ground, more libertarian uh, policies. I'm wondering, you know, as, as you're out campaigning and you know, really solidifying your message. What are some of the big policies that you're you're focusing on and, and talking to people um, about? So I am definitely talking about ending no-knock warrants. We've seen law enforcement kicking doors, um, finding themselves in the wrong property, uh, things of that nature. I just believe that there has to be a better way of executing a warrant. Um, so I stand against uh, no, or the party stands against uh, warrant, ending eminent domain, uh, ending civil asset forfeiture. We have so many people who are losing their property, uh, oftentimes uh, on uh, uh, egregious charges. And, uh, you know, we need to do better by the people. Uh, I just believe that we can do better. Um, I, I would like to see our district attorneys throughout the entire state not prosecute no victim crimes. If there's no victim, then where's the crime? Because government should only exist to protect the rights and liberties of the people. Um, so if, if the rights and liberties have not been violated or infringed upon, then there's absolutely no need for government to intervene. Um, and then, you know, there are some others where I say there, I call them see the possibility uh, moments where if we see the possibilities of having an intrastate uh, hyperlink uh, uh, transportation system that can connect our major cities quicker than uh, it takes for ground travel and air travel. Uh, I mean, I would love to be able to move from Memphis to Nashville in an hour for lunch or something, or, you know, if somebody lives in Nashville and works in Chattanooga uh, and they don't necessarily have to drive, they could take the uh, Hyperloop and uh, be able to uh, 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 have access to employment opportunities outside of their immediate area. It improves our uh, tourism. You can fly into Nashville and maybe do a concert and then take uh, the uh, transit system to uh, Memphis to do uh, Beale Street. And then it also improves our air quality as we talk about improving uh, environmental justice that, um, you know, we don't have as many cars on the highway and um, uh, having that type of transportation system, transit system would uh, reduce our, uh, our carbon imprint. I mean, there are just so many things that we can be doing that improves the, uh, the, uh, the quality of life in our state. 
for uh, for everyone. Yeah, well, as someone who's driven across uh, Tennessee a number of times from, you know, from Memphis all the way to East Tennessee, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see something like that that would uh, shorten that drive. I mean, my God, oh, it's, for a, sure. yeah, it's, it's a bit of a pain in the ass to make if you have to. Um, I mean, what would what would getting a system, a, a transit system like that uh, look like? I know California uh, wanted to build, I can't remember how many miles of high speed rail, but it ended up being you know, as, as everything else in California seems to just a, a massive, massive cost. Um, right. So I believe that when I've never seen anything work when government has put its hands in it, <laughs> but um, I think that what government could do is foster relationships with the private sector to be able to put something like that together uh, to establish it. And I mean, we have, we have the land in between the roads now, as you're driving, um, up and down the highway, the land is there to be able to put such a uh, system together. Um, and um, I think that we just have to be able to explore those opportunities um, and and not have it be a tax burden on the citizens. Um, I believe in eliminating and reducing taxes and uh, some things we could possibly crowdfund. There are other ways to generate capital and revenues in order to sustain projects rather than always uh, taxing citizens and businesses. Right. There's another issue that's um, been in the news quite a bit the past couple of weeks, um, not not just in Tennessee, but nationwide is uh, Roe v. Wade. It looks like mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned this summer whenever the Supreme Court, you know, re releases the, the final opinion. Um, and I, I know Bill Lee just recently uh, criminalized uh, abortion pills being distributed via mail, Correct. and there, there's a there, there's some split in the Libertarian Party um, on abortion. You know, there 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 are quite a few pro life Libertarians that um, you know probably don't mind seeing Roe v. Wade overturned, and there are other uh, Libertarians that you know see it as you know government intruding where they don't need to be. I was wondering where you fall. Um, on on abortion generally, Roe v. Wade overturned. What, what's your opinion there? So at the base, uh, Roe v. Wade gave or gives an individual the choice. And I believe that everyone should have the choice to make whatever decisions for their, for their lives and not government. Um, um, being involved in those choices. I believe I am pro-family. Let me, let me establish that right off the bat. I am pro-family. I am, um, I don't uh, believe in abortion. That is my personal um, um, belief. Um, at the end of the day, though, I don't believe that government should make the choices for uh, individuals as it relates to their education or their medical um, I think that as a pro-family advocate, those are decisions that families need to be able to make uh, with their medical practitioners, within, uh, within the educational field or whatever is applicable to that issue. Um, so I think that Roe v. Wade should be a state level. Uh, uh, there should be 
uh, decisions made at the state level as it relates to the choices that individuals will be able to make. And then that allows citizens to be able to move to areas that better, um, that better align with their personal beliefs. I mean, we see it all the time. We see individuals move into communities uh, for better school options. Um, so, you know, if there are some choices that individuals want to make as it relates to their health care, education, or business and things of that nature, then um, that should be the choice of the individual and not the government. We see individuals make choices to bring their businesses to uh, Tennessee primarily because there's no income tax. So, right. uh, you know, at the end of the day, my position is just always about consumers and individuals having more freedom to make the choices that they need to make. And it is not my place to, to regulate any, any of those choices uh, uh, that people have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's a, that's a very fair, very, um, a lot more nuanced than a lot of the takes on uh, a Roe v. Wade that, that you see out, you know, in, in more mainstream news. Uh, and let me also say, though, um, because I know that the time is short, let me also say that um, I find it dis, dis, disheartening uh, that the Supreme Court would somehow leak uh, uh, the, the uh, brief mm -hmm. right the day before the primary. It allows, uh, in my opinion, uh, the, the Republican and Democratic parties to engage their voter base to try to get them to the polls because they recognize that most people vote emotionally and not based upon some research. Um, so I think that that's a manipulation of the people that they're really not concerned about uh, whether it was about being able to have an abortion or not have an abortion or a woman's right to choose. And then I also want to say that it opens the door for more of a cons uh, of, of the cons conversation around the rights of trans uh, individuals and how uh, legislation will probably be forthcoming as it relates to them being able to uh, have medical procedures to better align, in their opinion, with with the way that they live their lives. Um, I think that government, uh, that the Republicans and Democrats are playing with with um, that type of situation to make sure that they can um, provide oversight into those type of choices. But where does it stop? Will it will it stop where interracial couples are having uh, having a child and government decides that we don't want to have uh, mixed babies or, and, and, and things of that nature. Government should not be involved in making those type decisions. Those should be decisions that families make. And um, we need to uh, start looking at electing individuals into office who are genuinely concerned about advancing um, uh, the, the concerns of the people organically and and raising the floor for the people who have been marginalized and giving them back their freedoms and um, and and stop government from infringing upon their rights. Oh, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I think that's I mean, that's definitely crucial. It has to be a part of the conversation going forward about how, you know, both parties are, are, are guilty in that and are our, our time is short here. We have to wrap up here soon. I just want to kind of close out by asking, how is the campaign trail going? I know I saw you had a, uh, 
an event in Knoxville. It looked like a pretty good crowd. And then I know, I think afterwards you guys went out and ate lunch and, or, or dinner or whatever, and, you know, continued the conversation, man, how has uh, the campaign trail been treating you and what's on the, what's on the horizon for the Wilson for governor campaign? So the campaign trail has been extremely um, excellent. People have been welcoming um, we're finding that individuals are frustrated with their elected officials and they're looking for something different. And um, they they are embracing the campaign. Um, the challenge is just being able to get out and be more engaged with everyone um, and sharing that message. That is the, the biggest challenge of crossing the state um, and doing that with limited resources. So we're constantly uh, working to raise uh, monies uh, to support the campaign and not to have a big war chest, but to be able to just afford the things that we need in order to be effective uh, and competitive. Um, yes, we did go and we uh, we ate afterwards and then we went and smoked cigars at um, the cigar lounge that was right across the street, I believe in supporting small businesses throughout the state. And um, whenever we have an opportunity to engage in small businesses and support them, that's what I uh, plan to do around the state and bring attention to some of the businesses and encourage individuals to support them if they're in the area. Um, um, we have uh, a lot of things uh, in 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 um, in be that are being planned. I think the biggest is going to be July second. We're in the process of planning a launch for the campaign in Murfreesboro, and um, hopefully we can have information out more information about that uh, in the next couple weeks, so that individuals can um, come to Murfreesboro and connect and get engaged, and hopefully we can um, go from there. As we talk about ballot access. I'll be very clear about it is that I was the only out of all of our candidates that are running most many all of them have uh, submitted their paperwork as independents I was the only one that submitted my paperwork as a libertarian and as uh, as such the uh, the uh, establishment has moved to invalidate my signatures uh, so that I would not be on the um on the ballot, but that does not stop me from running because we're pushing a write-in uh, campaign right now. And it is the largest write-in campaign that this state would have ever seen. We are going to all 95 counties to submit our paperwork so that individuals who write my name in their, their, uh, their, their ballot cast will be accepted. And uh, we're connecting with everybody around the state. I am excited about it. And I look forward to being the next governor of the great state of Tennessee. Man, I'm excited about it too. I'm real excited to see where it goes. And if anyone listening wants to support you and your campaign with a donation, you can go to lamichaelwilson.com and donate there on the website. Um, whenever you do nail down the details for that Murfreesboro, Murfreesboro event, let me know so I can help blast that out, man. I'm excited to see where the campaign goes and you know what it has in store for you and, and, and you know follow your journey as the general election approaches and and just want to say you know really uh, appreciative that you came on the show today i'm glad we had this conversation thank you for having me all right we'll have you back anytime man really glad uh that we finally got this done thanks for being on thank you all right have a good one all right you too bye bye that was my conversation with LaMichael Wilson, Libertarian candidate for governor of Tennessee and the vice chair of the Tennessee Libertarian Party. I'm really glad we got to talk in depth about ballot access reform because when I read about LaMichael's situation, it blew my mind. 
It's bullshit that Democrats, Republicans, and Independents only need 25 ballot signatures, but LaMichael needed over 50,000. But anyway, if you liked what you heard from LaMichael on this episode, please consider supporting his campaign for governor with a donation at LaMichaelWilson.com. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Hey everyone, Taylor here and thanks for listening to the Bonfire Briefing Podcast. The intro for this episode is going to be a little different. As all of you know by now, 19 children and two teachers were shot and killed in a mass school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Uvalde is a little over 80 miles west of San Antonio, which is where I live. I wanted to take this opportunity to amplify some ways you can help the local community there in Uvalde. If you live around Uvalde, San Antonio, or anywhere else in South Texas, please consider giving blood at a blood drive near you. Another way to help is to donate money to some of the various fundraisers for the families. Uvalde CISD has created a Rob School Memorial Fund that you can donate to via mail or by sending money through Zelle to robschoolmemorialfund at gmail.com. If you want to write a check, the mailing address for the Memorial Fund is 200 East Nopal Street, Uvalde, Texas 78801. Be sure to make checks payable to Rob School Memorial Fund. The City of Uvalde is also accepting donations for medical expenses. Checks should be addressed to the City of Uvalde and sent to P.O. Box 799, Uvalde, Texas, 78802. GoFundMe has grouped all of these fundraisers together in a single category and made them really easy to find. I'll put a link to that GoFundMe page on Twitter when I release this episode. Here's a list of some other organizations that have created funds or fundraisers that you can donate through. The University Health San Antonio, the League of United Latin American Citizens, One Star Foundation, the Community Foundation of the Texas Hill Country, Victims First, Catholic Charities Archdiocese of San Antonio, and HEB even has an option to donate at checkout when shopping both in person and online. If you're able, please consider making a donation. The community in Uvalde has been devastated and they desperately need our help. No one thinks it'll happen in their community until it does. We need to come together and support the people of Uvalde however we can. Just a note before I get into the podcast, this was recorded last weekend before the shooting. My guest today is UFC welterweight prospect Preston Parsons. He's coming off an impressive win over Evan Elder at UFC Vegas 52. We talked about that, his path to the UFC, and what's next for him. Hope you guys enjoy. Right there, we go. Preston Parsons, welcome to the show. Good to be on. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Uh, really do appreciate it. Uh, you you looked great in your win over Evan Elder. It was just just a super impressive uh, victory, especially for someone you know just just really kicking off their UFC career. Um, it, it it seemed like no matter where the fight was, you know, on the feet, on the ground, whatever, Elder just. It just didn't really have any answers for you, it, you know, with in the striking, striking or the grappling. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about that win uh, and how you're feeling about it uh, about a month later? I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about it still. I, I'm still kind of living it up. I've never won a, a big. I mean, I've won plenty of fights, but not a UFC fight. So that definitely means a lot more to me. Um, but Evan is 
super tough. He his his kicks were good. My forearms were still kind of lumped up. I don't know if it will ever go back to normal, but um, he had some some good kicks. But uh, I was training really hard for that fight. I had a lot of a lot of good training coming into it. Um, I had a lot of good people in my camp with me. I have a lot of good fighters here at home. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of good pro fighters and amateur fighters. I went to Atlanta for a few weeks to train at ATT with the uh, Lima brothers. Okay. So um, I was pretty confident coming into the fight. Uh, I knew that if it stayed standing, I would do just fine. And on the ground, I felt like I could get the submission. Yeah, well, uh, you you looked great on the ground. Like your your wrestling was awesome. Like the timing of your takedowns, the reversals. You know, I mean, it was all great. Uh, especially some of your ground and pound, man. You you had, you had some moments there where you were throwing just some just some brutal ground and pound. I think you know, at one point you started raining down some elbows and you know you cut them uh above and below his eyes and uh it, it, it was it was brutal man i thought i thought you were about to wrap it up there were you surprised by elder's toughness and the fact that you weren't able to finish him definitely and i was trying the whole fight to get him get him out of there uh really tough he was doing a good job when i was in mount to kind of scramble move his hips side to side made it hard for me to control the position to, to land some good ground and pound but the ones that I did sneak in, I definitely threw them with intent. So um, I, I know I got one of the cuts in the first round. I think it was just like a short elbow. But uh, I think the last one was in the third. But uh, he, he was definitely super tough. And I talked to him in the ER, and he said that everything I hit him with felt felt solid. Yeah, no, I bet it did. You, you cut him like – you had him like cut above and below like both of his eyes like there at the end of the fight. It was it was crazy to see it. It was even crazier that that – you know, he, he lasted the whole fight, obviously just a, just a super tough dude. Right. That just says more about his toughness. He was super game. The whole fight, he was still, still fighting back the whole fight too. It's not like he gave up at any point. Right. Right. Yeah. He was still, you know, he was still putting forth offense. You know, he was, I mean, he, he was in there, but man, you were just, you were too much to handle in that fight for him. Um, you know, you, you mentioned your, uh, you know, your fight camp and the training and everything. I, I know for your UFC debut, you know, you didn't have a full camp. You know, it was more of a shorter notice type thing. Can you can you talk a little about your preparation for the fight with Evan Elder um, and, and just, you know, how much having that full camp really, really benefited you? Uh, it, it definitely it helps with everything. It helps with the weight cut. It helps with uh, game planning a little bit. Uh, the when I fought D-Rod, made my debut, I fought about a month before that. It was June 5th, and I fought in Jacksonville on the regional card and then wasn't really training too much, kind of taking it easy after that win. And then uh, we had a, a week notice to fight D-Rod, so we kind of just went, went for that one. And uh, I definitely wouldn't take it back. It was a good learning experience. But for the training camp, for it was supposed to be Luis Cosi before uh, he got COVID, I guess, right before the fight. So I ended up fighting Evan instead. Mm. Um, but it was just uh, a lot of hard, it was it was a lot of hard training, but it was kind of similar to what I've done in the past. Uh, I, I work a little bit of everything. I have wrestling days, jiu-jitsu days, striking days. One thing I focused a little bit more on this past camp was doing a little less sparring and uh, kind of focusing on uh, pad work and uh, hard hit workouts, Tabata workouts. And I had um, some different coaches kind of work for me this past fight to kind of improve on some of the areas that I needed to be improved in. Yeah, no, and I, I think it showed, man, like I said, just a you know, super impressive win that you had back in, in April. Um, I want to 
kind of uh, transition here, you know, talk a little bit about um, how you got into MMA, because I feel like every fighter kind of has a has a different story about, you know, how they got into it. What was your first experience like getting into in the combat sports? Um, it was a little kind of newer, I guess, around the area that I'm in in Jacksonville. I started right at 10 years ago. So um, I was too young to fight. So there wasn't and there wasn't very many amateur promotions to fight for. Uh, but I first got into fighting and combat sports when I was really young. I was super into the Rocky movies and just underdog story. And I, I wasn't the, the best athlete as a kid. So, um, but I definitely, so I just the underdog kind of being the person that can, isn't super talented, isn't super athletic and still kind of make something of it. So that's kind of what got me into sport. And when I was, I think 11 or 12, I started doing karate then that didn't last that long but i got into mma when i was 16 and it was my choice so i was i was there every day i was training every day i had a good wrestling coaches a lot of good people around and uh, it's since then just only gotten better yeah what um yeah what what has that journey to uh, the ufc been like what was you know you know did you always know that you would end up in the ufc uh, one day? Yes, I, I've always kept that in the back of my mind. I, I've always knew I would get there just so 10 years of doing it and not getting there is a little little discouraging. So it was discouraging towards the end. But I have a, I have a really good manager, uh, Steve Swedish, that kind of really pushed me to get to the UFC and um, pushed getting me there, I guess. So uh, everything, everything I'm sure reason and time, reason and time is important. So uh, I think everything happened in perfect timing. Right. Yeah. And, and, and shout out Steve Swedish, man, for helping set this up. Uh, you know, really glad that we were able to, you know, work through him and, and get this done. Um, when, when did you know that you wanted to go pro? Like, did you, was fighting pro something you wanted to do? Like when you started training at 16, was it always something you wanted to do? When, when did you know that you wanted to make cage fighting your career? I, I knew before I even started training, I kind of, I saw it. My stepdad introduced me to some of like the, the original UFC fights and I was friends with some of the wrestlers and I'd always love boxing in the front yard and stuff. So <laughs> as soon as I saw MMA and I saw that I could fight, that it's, I knew right then that's something I was going to do. And that that's what I was going to do. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. I've, I've, I've heard that from a lot of people. It's just like, once they finally took that step, you know, to actually making it happen, there was just, there's, there's no turning back, you know, it, it, it definitely takes a special kind of person to, you know, to fight an MMA as a career, but for those type of guys like you, like Gabe Green, like, like a whole bunch of people, you know, I, you probably, you probably can't imagine yourself doing anything different. Can you? No, not, not anymore. And even before I, I don't really, I'd probably be miserable doing something else. Yeah. Now, something that was interesting that I, that I heard from Gabe Green, because he, he grew up out in uh, California, you know, and got his start out there. And I heard you say the same thing that he did, that there just there, that there wasn't, uh, you know, that it, it wasn't a big amateur scene um, in, in California for him and Florida. For you. It's kind of confusing to me. You figure that those would be two states that would have a bigger amateur MMA scene, don't you? You know, you think. Right, yeah, definitely. I know South Florida's kind of always had them, but it, again, the sport's growing. Just even over the last five years, it's grown a ton since then. So, and, and also for me, I was so young that I wasn't even allowed to fight until I was 
right that's when i turned 18 it was just it was on from there on oh yeah no and did um did, did the lack of uh amateur opportunities there in 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 florida kind of lead you to going pro uh early you know like if you could go back would you have had more amateur fights before you went pro or do you think you you did it you know just right um it, for me it was never really fight there was um there was always one good promotion about it. i always had um uh, combat night was uh i, I actually mitchell chamali is where i met my manager uh, and he's always been okay. a good guy and a good promoter so combat night was always there but other than that there was no other promotions nearby and I, they only came to jacksonville i think once a year um so kind of having to travel to lakeland to uh, miami and everywhere else to find but combat night's always been a good promotion yeah do you, do you still train over there in jacksonville you might have already said that but do you still train over there yes yeah I, I train here i own a gym here too so i own a gym i have uh, a partner and we we have a good bike team so we have me and probably like a half dozen pros and a dozen amateurs oh wow that's awesome what uh you know, how, how, how was that process like starting up a gym um the the gym i was at before i kind of ran pretty much all the operations then i taught all the classes and stuff like that so it wasn't too unfamiliar for me um but opening up right in the middle of covid that was kind of a that was kind of tough so getting through like the first six months first year was kind of difficult but then after that again a lot of good training it's not just me there i'm not the only fighter so i have a lot of good coaches and a lot of good coaching coming in and out of there right that man that's awesome um do you happen to catch any of the any of the fights over the weekend oh yeah yeah uh i watched i watched all of them last night but i i one I watched, I guess, probably closest is the um, drawing a blank on her name, but uh, Michelle Ponzian. I, I can't pronounce the last name that well. Right. But the two seven years, the, the co main last night, I watched that one. And I watched the main event of two, of course. I think Holly Holm won the fight for sure. Yeah, that, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was definitely going to be uh, my next, you know, my next question there. I think everybody who watched that main event is kind of, kind of scratching their head a little bit, you know, I mean, you look at, you, you, you look at how many, you know, strikes Holly landed compared to Catlin and Holly had over 10 minutes of, of control time. I mean, it's kind of, it, I mean, it's not kind of, it's really crazy that, you know, Holly didn't get her hand raised there at the end. Exactly. Yeah. Seeing the numbers after the fight just made it even more clear, but it, it seemed like Holly was the aggressor for the most part too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I thought, yeah, I think we were just all expecting Holly to get her hand raised and then it, you know, then it didn't happen. And of course, you know, they, they talked to her after the fight and, you know, even since then she's, you know, said that she thought she won and, you know, just like pretty much everyone else, except for those two judges sitting there. Um, she took it well. because I, I, I know she had to have been upset. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't even, imagine you know and i i talked with gabe green a little bit about this too um it's just you know bad judges have have always existed you know it's just kind of a it's a thing about the sport that you know the fans the fighters even dana you know complain about uh you know all you know all the time it seems like there's always some controversial decision that's lighting everybody up um and, and i saw some people talking about 
you know, like ways to remedy that. I, you know, I don't know how much you can do about the actual judges uh, themselves, but I, I saw some people talking about, you know, implementing like an open scoring system. Uh, and it, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Do you think that that's something that the, the UFC should look at implementing? What do you think? Um, no, I, I've seen some stuff like that, but I, I kind of, I like the way that it's done right now. I, I don't think they're doing, they could do anything much better, but um, maybe make sure the judges are actually knowledgeable. And uh, I'm not exactly sure like if they can see all the numbers right in front of them the whole time. It's all like computerized now where it shows like how many strikes being land. And I know they're watching the fight too, but if they were watching that fight, then they definitely would have picked home the win. So it's hard to say, it's hard to answer that one, but I've, I do kind of like the way it is now because like letting it would be a little probably biased if they had a bunch of like, like an open judging. Yeah. And I, and I've seen some people say, you know, like if you, if you let the fighters know what the score is going into each round, like you, you know, you might have some fighters that are like, you know, shit, I'm up, I'm up two, three rounds, you know, why not just kind of coast my way through, you know what I mean? Like, so there's, there are some issues there, but man, you know, it, uh, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a problem that's been around for a while. And like you said, you know, I don't know that there's an easy fix for it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. You know, open scoring, it's something interesting. I think Invicta does open scoring. Um, I, could, I might have the promotion wrong, but there is one kind of notable promotion that does it. And I know even with uh, promotions that have open scoring, some fighters tell their coach not to let them know what the round is because they, you know, they, they don't want to know. Right. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably want to know, but how do they do it? Do they do it like on a, a social media they judge or is it like a website where they're, they're watching and they can do it online? Uh, I'm, I'm actually not really sure exactly how they do it. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's just a, you know, it's an interesting system. Uh, and then, you know, PFL has like a unique uh, judging system too, where like the, like the commentators, you know, judge the rounds as they're watching them. And then they've got like a whole, uh, they've got like an algorithm. I can forget what they call it something, but like there's an algorithm that they use to determine like who the algorithm thinks won that, that round. Um, I don't know. That's, that's pretty cool. That's, that's interesting. I, I, I need to look into that more. Yeah. 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 Go. Yeah. It, it's, um, you know, I, so, you know, I, I've introduced a lot of my friends to like the UFC and then some other MMA promotions and PFL is one that always uh, sticks out to them just because of the way that they, you know, that they do things differently over there, especially with the scoring system. It's, it, it's real neat. You'll have to, you'll have to take a look at it. Yeah. What, what did you think about the, the co-main event though? I think a lot of people who were watching last night were really looking forward to my, you know, to to those two fighting um I think, what, what uh, was your takeaway ponsonibio yeah i think uh, yeah explosive he's doing all flying knees and stuff so i think he he fought pretty good um i definitely wanted to see some backflips and some fly, more flying knees and stuff but uh <laughs> other than that it was still it was a good fight there was a lot of back and forth uh it's it was a close decision it's hard to really say who won that one as well yeah, it was, you know, just back and forth, you know, the whole way through, uh, like you said, super, super close decision. Um, I've actually got to wrap up uh, here before 
too long, but, you know, like, like I was saying earlier, man, you know, your win over elder was super impressive, impressive. I mean, you know, wrestling looked great. You, you know, you, you dominated them in, in pretty much every, uh, aspect of the fight you know what what are you looking at moving forward you know what are you thinking's next for you you have any names in mind you know what are, what are you thinking i'm watching the uh, the welterweight weight class a little bit more closely now that I've, I've gotten some wins or i got that win um i broke my hand that fight i had surgery a week ago so i'm, I'm uh-huh. healing my hand up but hopefully i'll be fighting again in october so october before the year's up i want to fight again and hopefully fight like a top 15 guy top 20 guy Get a, get a number next to my name oh yeah yeah how, how are you feeling after that uh after that surgery how's your how's your hand feel it, it feels fine it's been a week now so it's healing up good it was kind of surreal the other day i saw the x-rays and i have a big big screw to, screw going down the back of my hand now so that was kind of different to see but it's it's healing up good i can almost use my my finger again okay how, how, how long do you think it'll take before you're able to get back in there and get back to training some they told me 12 weeks total it's been about it's been one so i i think i'll be kind of training again in six maybe a month from now kind of rolling around and touching a little bit but i'm not supposed to punch for 12 but i think i can start punching again after eight lightly and then hopefully smashing things again by 12 weeks and get something scheduled yeah well i'm I'm definitely real excited to see you fight again man you know after a win like that you know you you really just look forward to to what's next for you know someone like you to come off a big win like that, man. I'm I'm gonna be watching close. I'm real I'm real excited about it. Um, just before we wrap up here, you have any any, any sponsors or anybody you want to shout out? Anything like that? Um, Ruby Ruby SE, my manager Steve, uh, my gym Elevate MMA, and all the guys that train there. Um, and that's that's about it, honestly, right now. Yeah, special shout out to Steve again for helping us get this set up, man. I, you know, I really do appreciate you coming on the show and uh, no talking problem, to me. Man. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's I been do. a lot of fun. Uh, anytime you want to come back on, man, just just hit me up and uh, we'll make it happen. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks a lot, man. I'll, I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to the Bonfire Briefing Podcast. That was my conversation with UFC welterweight prospect Preston Parsons. If you haven't watched his most recent win over Evan Elder, I would highly recommend doing so. His wrestling, striking, and overall skill set really shined in that fight. You can't help but think that he has a bright future in the UFC. I really enjoyed talking to Preston today, and I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at BonfireBriefPod so you don't miss the next episode. Also, who should I talk to next? Shoot me a DM or reply to one of my tweets on Twitter and let me know. I'm always looking for new guests to invite on, and I would love any recommendations that you all have. Thanks for listening.